When I notice something is happening, I try to think of why is it happening. When I saw people who played in certain styles and I saw that they that they were winning, I wouldn't just, even if the style seemed weird, I wouldn't just dismiss it as that they just got lucky. I'd say, well, wait a second. Might there actually be a reason why this style works? Of course, all the stuff we're talking about 40 years ago, now it's just second nature to thousands of gamblers. But when, when I first hit Vegas, there was basically no one who was thinking along these, way, uh, along these lines. Hi, it's Ranchix. The following is my conversation with David Sklansky. He is a brilliant mind on the topic of gambling. He is one of the top authorities in the world. David is an author of several hugely successful books. Now, how about these terms? Semi-bluff, implied odds, effective odds. Sound familiar? Well, David coined those and many more. His insights on gambling and poker are invaluable and some of his advice is timeless. Many of the concepts that David came up with 40 years ago are still relevant in your games today. David has rubbed shoulders with many of the greats in the industry, poker players, casino owners, businessmen. We discuss some of these encounters and adventures, I don't want to give you any spoilers. David shares some great anecdotes and at the very least you'll have a good laugh about some of those. We also dig into some big stories about cheating and collusion in the live games throughout the years and there's so much more. As always, the timestamps are in the description, makes it easier for you to jump around the topics if you feel like it. Links to David's books are also there, check those out. And now, please enjoy this conversation with David Sklansky. Well, David, it's it's so great to have this conversation with you. I'm, I was so looking forward to it, uh, so much to discuss, uh, and I'm really glad you found the time. There's no problem. I'm sure I'll enjoy it. All right. Well, I, I'm sure I'll enjoy it because I read your book. Actually, I read three of your books, <laughs> the three books that you recently came out with. And um, I don't even know where to start. So I think we'll start chronologically because there are so many stories from that book that I want to talk about. Uh, you've mentioned so many things that I'm sure not many people know about, not many people outside of that close-knit community have heard about. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I want to start with the story of how you got into poker and gambling in general. Maybe let's start there and then go ahead slowly from there. Okay. Well... In the book, I admit that part of the reason that I got into it is because I have some uh, flaws or psychological problems that pushed me away from what the rest of my extended family does, which is to be academically inclined, and they're all professors and doctors, and one that was a... The other David Splansky, for instance, was a uh, clerk for Harry Blackman of the Supreme Court and is now considered the best uh, law professor in Stanford. And my father was a brilliant mathematician and quite a few of the other ones are uh, doing all the right things. But I, I had these little quirks that even I had similar talents, but I, I couldn't deal with the academics that, that well. I, I would get bored easily. I had trouble sleeping. And 
as I was trying to figure out how to take advantage of my talents without having to go through all of the um, normal channels, all of a sudden um, Thorpe wrote a book about winning at blackjack. And there was a poker game at the University of Pennsylvania where everybody in the game would analyze every hand. And that pretty much uh, set the tone for what I was going to do the next 40 years after that, because my talents and my flaws uh, added up to becoming a professional gambler. That's something I want to explore a bit more, because... um... With all the talentful mathematics and with all the hate for academics that you had, do you think, why do you think you chose gambling as as a path? What about it seemed like, okay, you know what, this is actually interesting and that's something that I want to do? Well, first of all, back when I started, there was not nearly enough appreciation for the degree that mathematics uh, and logic plays in gambling. That's no longer true. In fact, it might have already swung too far toward math. Uh, But back then, my abilities in in, uh, probability and, and the stuff that my father had taught me at a very young age uh, and my aptitude for those kind of problems meant that it would be very simple for me to quickly become better at various forms of gambling than almost anyone who was presently doing it because almost nobody uh, had the slightest idea what they were doing. I mentioned a story in in the book about how uh, fellow came up to me and asked me the simplest possible gambling problem and to the point where I thought he had misunderstood about somebody who had challenged him. And after I told him, of course, you're right, your your side is right, uh, 20 minutes later, he came back and he gave me $500. And I could... It was just so astonishing to me that this guy was willing to give me $500 because he had won a few thousand on a problem that was so simple that for anybody who had done, who knew the simplest math. And then later on, a few years later, I made a a $30,000 score because the people who were printing parlay cards didn't know the simplest facts about combinations. So uh, it was, I was destined to, to go into this. There's been other people who've done the same thing. I mean, there are people who have beaten lotteries and who have beaten um, the early surrender uh, deal they had at, uh, in Atlantic City. Uh, the people who used to be involved in gambling and even the professional gamblers, they were just uh, clueless about basic probability. And then you, you, you add that to the fact that I had a, a sleeping problem. I don't like, and I have a boredom problem. So what else was I going to do but be a professional gambler? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you, when you put it that way. And actually, just to put it in perspective, I want to stress that the $500 that you were talking about, 
that's $500 when back in the day when $500 actually was a lot of money. Oh yeah, it was probably maybe 3,000, like 3,000 right now. Yeah. I did I did the simplest little calculation for him. I mean, I could tell you what it was it's in the book, what it was. It was a low ball draw calculation where somebody had challenged him to a low ball draw calculation uh, problem because he had read something and he read it wrong. And it was just a silly little thing. But it was the first time I realized that, wow, I'm in Las Vegas and people were just throwing their money away. And uh, I was hooked. Mm. And also, you know, you went to in Pennsylvania to Wharton, which is one of the most prestigious business schools in the world. And you ended yeah. up finding a group of people, the five guys that were so obsessed with poker. I find it quite ironic, to be honest, because, uh, you know, your, your father or your family in general, they persuaded you to go and pursue the path and, and go, go to the university. You were not, you were well, somewhat reluctant to go there, right? Well, it never occurred to me that I wasn't going to go to college, even though I didn't really like school, but, um, they, uh, they didn't, um, I mean, I probably, if my father had had his way, I would have gone to MIT, but already I had kind of realized that I was not cut out to do the things that people have to do to, you know, to, to advance highly in that field. So, but I was willing to go to Wharton and I originally had planned to be an actuary, which would have been very boring for me, but simple. And then there was this poker game where they weren't exactly obsessed with it, but what they, but they were very interested in the game theoretically. And it was because of that, they did something that's never normally done in a poker game. I've never seen it before, where after almost every hand, they would talk about the hand. You know, if he had raised there, if he should have just called and let the other guy in. And, and they, because it was, they were playing partly for money, but mainly for enjoyment and mainly because they thought it was an interesting game. Mm -hmm. And that was part of my, you know, my upbringing in poker. So, uh, and as that was going on, it became more and more obvious to me that, uh, there was a lot of things about poker that had never been thought of before, or at least never in, in a, in an organized way. And, uh, eventually, of course, I put that on paper in that, in the book, the theory of poker, but that's one of the things I, I do do. I, when I notice something is happening, I try to think of why is it happening? When I saw people who played in certain, with, with certain styles and I saw that they, that they want, were winning, I would, I wouldn't just, even if the style seemed weird, I wouldn't just dismiss it as, as, as the, that they just got lucky. I'd say, well, wait a second. Might there actually be a reason why this style works? I mean, uh, uh, like the semi-bluff was, came into my head that way. I would notice that, that they did a lot of semi-bluffing. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't call it semi-bluffing because that word didn't exist until I wrote it. But that's what they were doing. And then I said, well, wait a second, semi-bluffing, is similar to another another play that was considered wrong until they figured it out, which is in blackjack the the soft doubling down. Semi bluffing and soft doubling down are mathematically similar. 
you your chances of winning isn't high enough to make it worth it. Your chances of improving isn't high enough to make it worth it. But when you combine the two, you you have a winner. You have a, a plus EV. And that was something that some people hit upon without even necessarily knowing why. And so, and they would be winners. So I'd look at the winner and I would say, what, what is he doing and why, why might it be working? Of course, all the stuff we're talking about 40 years ago, now it's just second nature to thousands of gamblers. Mm-hmm. But when, when I first hit Vegas, there was basically no one who was thinking along these, way, uh, along these lines. Yeah, and there was an interesting um, mention in your book of a digital calculator. When you first got your hands on a digital calculator, and not many people right. had those back in the day, you felt like you have this huge advantage, which you did in a way, because all of a sudden, a lot of the problems that you were trying to solve were so much easier. It's just crazy. Yeah, I could to do think. them so much quicker. Well, right, sure. absolutely, yeah. And it's just crazy to think that something as simple as a calculator could have given an advantage back in the day when nowadays you know people are measuring who has the stronger solver and a faster computer and all of those things and you know that we came a long way from the beginnings so to say right well that calculator which was given to all of the actuarial trainees which i did do for a few months that calculator is what i use to figure out the uh relevant probabilities for through a poker, jacks are better. A game that actually, I'm surprised it totally died because it actually is a nice little game. But it used to be very well, uh, highly played because it used to be the only one, only game you could play in California, either that or low ball draw. I don't even know how many people know that, but California had legalized poker for many, many years in a, in a town called Gardena and a few others. and But you could not play stud poker and hold them didn't even exist. So draw poker was easy to calculate. But still, it was a lot of, there was a lot of fractions to multiply, et cetera, et cetera. And it was so much easier when you had, did have this digital calculator. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did at, at work instead of doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was figuring out draw poker problems. We're talking about like 1969, I think, mm. something like that. And I wonder how how was it? How must have it felt when you are seeing these gambling problems as a mathematical problem? So looking at those from a different lens to most people, and also being in the field, which even nowadays it's not regarded as you know, something reputable. Uh, oh, you're a gambler. Does, it doesn't sound that great. But back in the day, it was probably even worse. So how, how did you feel about the whole thing? When you see everything from a different lens and when you're doing something that not many people were professional gamblers back then? Well, the main thing, I, I mean, the fact that it wasn't reputable was didn't bother me except for the fact that my parents were not happy about it. So they, uh, but as far as the, as far as, you know, the general public thinking, oh, you're a gambler, 
I wasn't too worried about that. I, they, uh, you know, I, I just was enjoying the fact that I didn't have to, uh, you know, deal with the day-to-day problems that the average person has to do, get up at six in the morning, put on a tie. That was another thing about me. I couldn't stand wearing ties. I've only worn a tie in my whole life, maybe. Well, I, I, there was one short-term job, and aside from that, maybe 10 times in my life I've worn a tie. I don't like the, the feeling of it against my neck. Hmm. So all those things, I mean, and then I now I'm in Las Vegas, and I can get up when I want, and I can play as long as I want, quit when I want. Uh it's really the, the the concept isn't even that strange anymore because the fact is nowadays the um, poker champions are probably uh, have a lot in common with what I with me back then. There's a lot of really smart poker players now who could have you know done a lot of other things and chose uh, chose to instead play poker. Although nowadays some of them are regretting it because it has become so tough that, that, uh, some of them are saying, yeah, they should have been stayed in school, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I quit my college after one year, basically. So when I saw what I could do as you know, playing, playing cards, it was too enticing. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to finish like my uh, the other people who went to Wharton, such as Steve Wynn, Lyle Berman, Michael Milken, and Donald Trump. They were all there approximately the same time as me, a couple of years before. I think I was a freshman when Trump was a senior. Okay. And there was a really funny story about Trump in the book. Uh do you know what? Actually, let's just jump into that because it, it's just the whole thing is so beautiful. And I want to come back to to the beginnings of you gambling. But I guess we can come back to it. And let's just go into that beautiful, interesting business relationship that you had with Bob Stupak. So let's let's start there. And I guess eventually we'll come to the Donald Trump story, uh, which is so fascinating and funny. So... Tell a bit about Bob and how you met him, and maybe for those who who don't know who Mr. Stupak was, uh, a bit about himself. Well, he um, he wound up being a uh, significant person in Las Vegas because he is the man who built the Stratosphere Tower in Las Vegas, which is got to be probably the second most well-known tower in the world after the Eiffel Tower, right? And um, although, as I think I mentioned in the book, it probably wouldn't have been, I either mentioned it in this book or the other one, D-U-C-Y, that, uh, that it wouldn't have been built if uh, I had not pushed him to build it. But that's a different story. Uh, the he he was very Trump-like, actually. Not as well-educated, though. And um, But he was very ambitious, and he came up with a bunch of different schemes uh, to make money. And then when he got to be about 25 years old, he decided to take 
his million or two dollars and and build a a uh, little small casino in in Vegas between downtown and the strip. It was a seedy part of town, but but he had enough money to build a hundred room hotel casino. And uh, but he did various things to try to get publicity for himself, and he tried. To, he liked hanging around the, the big shots, but he 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 wasn't a big shot, except for the fact that he had come up with one particular game that got him a lot of uh, renown. A game called Double Exposure Twenty One, mm-hmm. and and also another game called Crapless Traps. Uh, and that got him some extra business, even though he had a small little casino. Anyway, it's the World Series of Poker, and he started hanging out there, even though he didn't really know how to play poker, because that's where the action was. And I was, I guess, around, this was about 1975, I think, and so I had been in Vegas for about three years. Uh, I had written my first book, and when he when he showed up at the World Series of Poker, this was my opportunity to um, try to ingratiate myself with an owner. Uh, I had discovered that trying to ingratiate myself with anybody below owner could backfire because if you if you if you're an expert in something and then you and you tout yourself to the vice president. He's going to steal what you say, or or he's not going to pass it along because he's afraid that he will look bad. Mm. But if you can go all the way up to the owner, then then that's a different story. And here was my first owner, and so I I went up to Bob Stupak and I said, you know, you should know me because I know more about gambling than anybody in the world. Is what I said to him, and uh, he that didn't bother him that I said something so arrogant. Mm -hmm. But what he said to me, as I described in the book, was kind of unusual. He said, well, if you're so smart, then tell me what the odds are for a crapless craps. Which was like the perfect thing for me for him to say. Because that's my specialty, that kind of thing. And so I took a piece of paper. I spent 10 minutes. I gave him the answer, and he was duly impressed. He said, come, come have lunch with me tomorrow at my place. And, um, he asked me a couple of gambling problems and I, and I uh, suggested to him that I could also help him with some of his other decision-making problems. He agreed on the spot and hired me to be his consultant, but he called me not his consultant, but his resident wizard. Mm, because I he gave me type. a free room. <laughs> Must be the yeah, best. I still type. have the cards. <laughs> I still have the the cards from Vegas World. So I was his resident wizard, and I I lived off and on in in his place for several years, actually, in a nice little uh, suite there that he gave for me, mm-hmm. and um, you know, came up with a, a couple dozen ideas for him, and became a personal friend of his, and then. Uh, one of the things he did for publicity, this wasn't my idea, but but he but it was his idea was to bet a million dollars on the Super Bowl. The first person to pub, to ever bet a million dollars on the Super Bowl, he bet a million dollars on the Super Bowl. He won it. He got some publicity, 
And then a few weeks later, uh, he were, we're strolling through a, a casino and he says, well, it seems like I got to do something else now. What can I do? What, what, what can I, what can I do next? And I said, I think I have an idea for you, Bob. I said, you know, there's a new game that just came out <laughs> called Trump the Game. Trump, comma, the game. And um, not only did the game just come out, but, but when Trump advertised this game, he was a little bit nasty in the advertisement. And at the end of the at the end of it, it said, you know, in these uh, newspaper advertisements, it would say something like, "This game will tell you whether you have what it takes or not." Uh, but if you don't, don't worry about it. Just you can just go home and enjoy the wife and the kids. That was what Trump said. So I said to Bob, "Challenge Trump at his own game." for a million dollars. And the first thing Bob said was, well, I don't even know how to play the game. And I said, I don't think he's going to accept the challenge, but if he does, believe me, I'll make you the favorite. I don't know the game either, but it doesn't matter. I don't care what the game is. I can, I'll learn it to, well enough that you could, that you'd be a big favorite over Trump at his own game. Mm-hmm. And um, Bob put two, full-page uh, ads in two Eastern papers. The New York Post was one, and I don't remember the other one. And you can still find it. You can Google this, and you'll see the ad that Bob said where he uh, challenged Trump. And then at the end, he said, at the end of the, of the ad, he said, but don't worry, Donald. After I beat you, you can still enjoy the wife and the kids. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the New York press, you know, asked, Trump, are you going to play him? What are you going to do? He couldn't ignore it. It was a full page ad in the New York Post. Mm-hmm. And he, he did ignore it. Well, he didn't ignore it. What he said was, well, look, I can always get unlucky. I don't, and he, Trump is, I mean, Stupak is trying to get publicity off of my name. And I'm not going to do it because maybe I'll get unlucky, you know. There's, and, uh, but it wasn't a very persuasive counter argument. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the funny thing about the, the game was that neither Bob nor nor Trump knew that you needed three people. All Trump had to do was say, it's one of those games you need three people to play or more. All he had to do was say, um, well, how can I play him? It needs three people. But he didn't even know that about his own game. Yeah, that, so that, that was about, so I don't know, about, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was just one of, you know, as I said, a couple dozen crazy ideas that I came up with First two pack. Some of them, the ideas were mathematical. Mm-hmm. Some of them were not at, really at, at all mathematical, but they, ju- they were just outside the box thinking. And some were like a combination, partly mathematical, partly outside the box. And in a few cases, kind of not nice because we were, t- we were taking advantage of uh, people's ignorance, mm-hmm. which I love to do when they're trying to take advantage of me. I was less proud of taking advantage of people's ignorance when they weren't trying to beat me. Mm-hmm. And a few of the promotions I did for Bob were in that category. Probably the best example, although he wound up not doing it, but was when there was a, a slot tournament that was giving away a million, first prize was a million, second prize 50,000, 
third prize 20,000, fourth prize 10,000. And uh, it was a year long tournament and, and these regular people were gonna go up on a stage and play. And I said to Bob, you know, if you offer them all 60,000 each, you save $800,000 and they still might take it because three out of four of them are gonna get less than 60,000. And they did take it. They were willing to take it. They all had an EV of 260,000 and they were willing to take 60,000 mm-hmm. because of the, so that was an example of a, uh, of one of the things that, that I did that I wasn't particularly proud of, but it paid, it paid my way, paid my salary. Hmm. And I- we had all kinds of uh, crazy things happen to us. Some of which I didn't even mention in the book. Like for example, well, if I, I think I didn't mention some, and in some cases I don't remember, but I don't think I mentioned the one about the, the uh, Jerry Lewis telethon, did I? No, no. Okay, Jerry Lewis did a, a telethon in, in uh, Vegas for many years, and Trump used to run around dressed horribly and shabbily, and I wasn't much better. And we used to just go, but he had already become a very big shot because he was about to build the tower and he was running from, he had run for mayor and he was the second most prominent person for a while in Las Vegas. He had gotten to that point and we get to the, to the entrance to the Jerry Lewis telethon that, that went every year for muscular dystrophy. And we um, are stopped by the security guard and uh, he said, you can't come in without a ticket. And he said, and, and Bob said, okay, well, how much is it? And he said, you got to get the ticket. You got to go back to, into the casino and get a ticket. And so Bob said, well, what would it take for us not to get a ticket? He's because he's ready to give the guy a hundred dollars to just let us in. Right. Mm-hmm. And the security guard takes umbrage. And he said, the only way you'd be able to get in here without a ticket is to be Steve Wynn or Bob Stupak. <laughs> and to my regret, Bob didn't do what I would have done. Say, oh, why didn't he just tell me? Okay, I'm Bob Stupak. He didn't do that. He said, okay, never mind, and he walked away. But wow. I mean, he thought that was the the cooler thing to do. I don't know, but that was just it, just stuff like that happened all the time uh, with uh, him and and me, especially because, like I said, he never did. Uh, act anywhere the way you would expect a casino owner to act. But it was partially because of me, because I was constantly um, coming up with uh, crazy ideas for him. Maybe since we're on the subject of Bob, let's talk about the stratosphere tower and uh, how Mm -hmm. you helped to make it happen. Well, what... What I did is I, I, I took advantage of uh, what I thought was an obvious psychological, logical principle. What, what, what the, we realized that the tower was going to cost about $50 million to build. Bob did not have $50 million to, to invest. And he was trying to get other people to invest in it in various ways. And um, he was having trouble getting investors. And so he had abandoned the, the idea, actually. He said, I just, I'm not, 
there's no, I can't get the money. I need, I need, I need 50 million to build this thing. And I said, Bob, let me, let me just ask you a question. Cause I had seen the plan plans for it. He had already had an architect making these beautiful plans and I, I knew what it was going to look like. And in fact, other people did. He had the renderings was, was well known. Mm-hmm. I said, Bob, let me, let me ask you a question. I met, I think maybe they're, they're not, they don't trust that you will, you will actually build it after you, they, after you get this money, because he had kind of a bad reputation as not always following through on things. I said, this, this tower that's a thousand feet high, how high could you build it for the 10 million that you have? He said, I could go all the way up to the, to the pod. I could, I could go like 850 feet. The 40 mil, 40 of that 50 million is just that top part. I said, Bob, if you start building it, you know, you build it up a few hundred feet. So it'll cost you a few million. You're going to get the investors. That'll be enough to get the investors because they're not going to look at it and say he only spent 6% of the money. They're going to say, well, the thing's halfway up. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, well, I'm going to, I, I think... I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to, I'm going to take your advice and see if you're right. And that's, and, and that's what happened. And he, and he acknowledged that that's what happened. He, he built it with his own money, but when he got it up about halfway, he got the rest of the money to build it all the way. That's what, uh, that was my contribution to, to, to realize that he, once he got it up halfway, that the investors would, you know, would show up. Mm. So basically, I approached it as a gambling problem in a way. Yeah, well, I, but but I, because I knew part of the reason he wasn't getting it was because they didn't trust him. Mm-hmm. So, see, most people don't like to tell truth to power, I guess you call it. But I didn't mind saying it to him. You know, if I, I mean, if I was Trump's advisor, he'd be president again. Because that's his big was his biggest problem. He did if he he he'd make he makes mistakes and people were afraid to insult him to his face when he does make obvious mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I wasn't afraid to to tell Bob the truth when I thought that uh, you know. Of course, Bob probably had wasn't as sensitive as uh, as Trump is. He if Bob, when Bob when someone pointed out to Bob something that that might make him feel personally bad, but it would make him feel financially good. He appreciated it. So mm-hmm. I said, you know, the reason they're not, they're not giving you money is because they don't trust you. Get it halfway up and you'll get the money. That's how that stratosphere got built. Mm-hmm. Funny. Cause I look at that. I look at that stratosphere, you know, and I say, you know, it's considered it's shown every time they show Las Vegas, they show that, that, that tower. And, um, and I legitimately have the right to say that's because of me. Hmm. I mean, and, and Bob, I mean, that's so I, Bob probably, you know, in, in common sense says that he deserves more credit than me, even though it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me. But I, I, I take quite a bit of credit for that tower. You, hmm. Have you ever, well, you ever go to the, to the Moscow Tower? No, I've, I've never been to the Moscow Tower. No. Oh. I don't know if I mentioned in the book. I mentioned in the book that I went to Russia, but I don't know if I if I mentioned that the reason we went to Russia mainly was to see the Moscow Tower. 
That's right. A lot of people yeah, don't you, even you know there's a Moscow that. Tower. Yeah. Most people don't even know there's a Moscow Tower. I didn't know it. It's a pretty nice tower, too. Mm. But not as famous. I mean, the only famous ones are Seattle Tower, Toronto Tower, uh, the uh, Eiffel Tower, and this one in the stratosphere. Mm. Those are the most famous, I think. Yeah, and the stratosphere and definitely one, very iconic. And you know, whenever sure. whenever you see Vegas on a picture, it's it's right there. It's right there. Yeah, we had a lot of trouble getting approval for it too. I mean, it was uh, they tried to uh, stop it, and uh, they used arguments that were specious to try to stop it. But but most of the people in the government at the time did not like Bob, and. Um, Somehow he got a good enough lawyer to make them. I mean, they were saying it was going to interfere with the the airplanes, mm-hmm. but that's ridiculous. Now, now that argument now looks ridiculous because clearly the tower has less. It's so far away from the airport compared to, let's say, the Mandalay Bay or uh, a couple of the other hotels that are very near the airport, mm-hmm. and they approve those. Anyway, yeah, that was. That's the story with the tower. Right. And you know what? Let's circle back to your gambling exploits. And okay. I found it really fascinating that, and you several times you described the situation where you would see an advertisement for um, some sort of promotion from a casino. And you couldn't believe your eyes. You were thinking like, well, this can't be right. First of all, must be a misprint. Right. Well, there were two. There, there were two situations that were so ridiculous that any decent freshman in college who who took a simple course in probability would instantly see how insane they were, and 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 so even though. They were advertising the paper. I thought, okay, some marketing guy just didn't understand. And by the time it rolls around that we can do this, somebody will have told him that, you know, you can't do this, but it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. One had to do with parlay cards. And the bottom line was that the parlay card, besides paying the normal the normal payoffs, was paying sixty no, sorry, paying twenty for one if you got eight out of 10, eight out of 10. But the chances, whereas the chances of getting 10 out of 10 is one out of 1,024, the chances of getting eight out of 10 is 45 out of 1,024. You are, in fact, 45 times more likely to hit exactly eight out of 10 than 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And that's just simple, simple combinatorics. And so just that, if you bet every combination, it would cost you $1,024 at a dollar a piece. Just the eight out of 10 payoff got you back um, 20 times 45, which is 900. You got 900 of that 1,024 back just from that. And plus you got a a, a bigger payoff for nine out of 10 and a really big payoff for 10 out of 10. The bottom line was in simplest terms, if you walked up to the, to the bookmaker with a thousand and twenty four cards that included every combination, 
and you gave him $1,024, you could then say to him, listen, I'm going to save you some trouble so you don't have to do with the calculations. Just give me $1,700 or approximately $1,700. It was $900 plus um, $600 plus, uh, I think it was $160. Anyway, it was about $1,700 with no risk. We're talking no risk. It was a little bit more complicated than that, but basically no risk. Now, and, they, and they advertised this. Everybody in town knew it. Everybody in Las Vegas knew that the Stardust was doing this. Mm-hmm. And I heard there was one other person who took advantage of it. And, I, you know, mind-boggling. And then a few years later, there was an advertisement involving a small casino uh, where they were offering to pay you one and a half times your normal win in crafts if you rolled a seven or eleven to start with. If you if you won your bet by hitting your point, no, that's even money. But if you won your bet by hitting a seven or eleven to start with, you got one and a half times your bet. So they gave you an extra half a bet, eight out of thirty-six times. An extra half a bet. So they were giving you an extra approximately eleven percent. And you start off with a one and a half percent disadvantage. Now you have a nine and a half percent advantage. And what you needed to do to do that was to take your money and put it on the pass line. Hmm. That was the skill you needed. Mm-hmm. But that's no and, more and, people and, caught on to that. Well, that one more people caught on to it, yes. But they still, that, that, right, because that was so easy. But there's still not that many people, about maybe 30 people out of the population of 100,000. Mm-hmm. Like, where was everybody else? And how come they didn't, nobody told them? And how could they not even think? How did they do it? What made them think of this? I, that's why every time I would ever consider doing anything other than being a gambler or something like that would happen. I'd say, what am I, I can't leave here. Mm-hmm. And there's been a few, a, a couple of situations that I should have been there and I didn't. And, and I, I mentioned in the book where I mm-hmm. kind of kicked myself, New Jersey did something even worse. New, New Jersey probably gave away $50 million because of their uh, their blackjack rule. I, I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds, but they had something called early surrender. Mm-hmm. I didn't take advantage of this, but lots of people did. And all they had to do was play basic blackjack strategy, including the early surrender strategy. And for every $100 they bet, they made, I don't know, about 60 cents. But, you know, when you do that... 200 times an hour, you're, you're making, what, $120 an hour on the average. And mm-hmm. there were, there's just been so many things like that. And uh, now I think it's finally gone away, not just because people are capable of doing probability problems, but also because the ones who don't do the probability problems know they better ask somebody who knows how to do them. So that's, that's what is so, and of course this is extended into poker and it's kind of unfortunate because here, here the math is a little bit more complicated than probability. It's game theory, Mm -hmm. which is more complicated, but, but that's sort of sad because if you play perfect game theory, you do not have to try to figure out what the other person has. And that 
takes away what used to be a major interesting aspect to poker. But we're, uh, you know, that, that's we're going off the subject. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm glad to talk about that if you no, want no, to. But for sure. That's Let, the, let's talk about yeah. it. Why not? Once we're at the subject. Um, okay. Because that's, uh, you know, in your new book, uh, the theory of don no limit hold'em, right? The theory of poker applied to no limit. I took exactly. the, I took my original book, the theory of poker, and that original book did mention no limit here and there, but it used to not be an important game. And I realized that some of the concepts, some of the concepts in the original book, needed to be adjusted when you're playing no limit. It didn't have to be no limit hold'em, but and no limit uh, uh, requires uh, an adjustment. So what I did is I would basically went through the original book. It's the, this, and the, and the new book is almost exactly the same chapter names. Mm -hmm. And I wrote what it, it, it was written pretty much as under the assumption that you had read the original book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I pointed out where things change. I was uh, actually quite proud of that book, though, because it, there really was a lot of things to talk about. And um, I think I even threw some things in there that are were never written about before. Mm -hmm. Some of the ideas I have in there were, were basically never written about before, I don't think. Right. And um, so that but but game theory is. Um, see, People don't play perfect game theory, but they, but they use it as their default strategy. So they basically, they say, if I don't, if I'm in a situation where I know how the other guy plays and the best counter strategy isn't game theory, then I'll do it. But if I'm not sure I can default to game theory, because the thing about game theory is if you do in fact play perfect game theory, you are unbeatable and um, perfect game theory does not require that you know how the other person plays or that you even try to figure out how the other person plays, mm -hmm. which is sort of a sad thing because poker had required, used to require several talents and now it requires one less talent. And um, actually something is going on as we speak I think uh, you may know about it. There's a, a some, there's a head-up match between Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu. Yeah, yeah, of course. As we speak, mm -hmm. and um, most people think that Doug Polk is a very big favorite, mm -hmm. and the and then there's other people who find that difficult to understand because Daniel has done so well in tournaments. And but Doug has done very well in head-up games. But the the way to reconcile those opinions is because Doug, in general, tries to stick to what he thinks is is proper game theory. Daniel has had success has come from playing against bad players. Now, if you play game theory against bad players, you will win but you will win significantly less than you would have if you adjusted to their bad play. So you have a situation where I could be quite a bit better than you 
or more successful than you against bad players. But when you play me, you'll beat me. And that's the situation that, in other words, Daniel plays bad players better than Doug does. Mm -hmm. Yet Daniel will still probably lose to Doug because of the nature of this game theory stuff. Most, most games don't work like that. If, if, you, if I can beat a bad player in bowling worse than you can, then I'm going to beat you too. Right. But, mm-hmm. and most games are like that. If I, but in, in this particular situation, it's not because of this game theory, which, you know, I have mixed emotions about. I mean, I mentioned game theory in my original theory of poker book, but I only talked about it in in, in a specific situation, namely bluffing on the river. Mm-hmm. But now they've extended it to all streets, and um, even I extended it to all streets in the new book and the uh, and the uh, apply to game, to uh, no limit mm-hmm. theory of poker. Yeah, and you know what, David? I want to just mention something, sort of sidetrack um, on the topic of your books, because first of all, I find that. They're amazing, right? I think what you did for the poker world, it's 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 great. And uh, so, first of all, thank you for that. And and second, I wanna say that you know, just looking from a perspective of an online poker player, or predominantly an online poker player, such as I am, I know that people are less and less impressed by the poker books because everybody is once again too too focused on their solver work, uh, let's call it that way. On their what? On their solver work. So on their computers, on the solvers, on the game oh, theory. Oh, solvers, okay, s- yeah. Solvers, yeah. Okay. But I want to say that, you know, it's so stupid to dismiss the basic ideas, the ideas that you talk about in your book from so many angles. And I, I find that there's so much great advice in those so i can highly recommend everybody checking them out and to be honest like what your original book sold quarter million copies right or something uh, at like least that. yeah my top my top four books i think have sold um about that yeah yeah each yeah yeah and it's crazy crazy numbers to to think about it and also the terms that you coined Right, because nowadays everybody's everybody knows what a semi bluff me- means, what implied odds are, what are the effective odds. You know, there's even the term Sklansky dollars. I don't know if you've coined it yourself. Yeah, Sklansky it, bucks. Yeah, I yes. didn't coin it myself. That yeah, was, and the DUCY that I told you about—that's another comes from me. Yeah, People use it without yeah. even realizing. <laughs> yeah, and also just just the whole concept of looking at the hold'em, the set of hold'em uh, hand combinations as a chart that was also novel seems so obvious nowadays but that was something you came up well with. I, I and 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 the chart isn't perfect they were, but what happened is that when i first wrote my first book holdem was a was was a weird game because it's not obvious which is which is better than which is three different kinds of good hands. There's the pairs, there's the two high cards, and then there's the suited connectors. Mm-hmm. So, and then, but but how do you how do you intersperse them? So what I did is I realized I they needed to be interspersed. You know, so uh, that uh, let's say um, king queen offsuit 
called the King Ten offsuit probably is uh, you know isn't as good as um, nine eight suited. So I think I, I'm not even sure. I think I had nine eight suited a little bit higher than King Ten offsuit, mm-hmm. and uh, and then pair and you know pair of fours. Where does that go? And compared to the nine eight suited, but but a pair of eights would maybe be higher. And so I, I just inter we I was like shuffling them all together. And uh, I wasn't that concerned about being perfect at all. But the problem was that for most people was before I did that, they really just didn't know. They they were thinking that a seven offsuit was better than Queen Jack suited. And because um, it was an ace. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, it is better if you're going <laughs> to nowadays when you're when you're looking to go all in before the flop head up, uh, you'd rather have the a seven. But um, that's nobody thought about that stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I always was trying to find new ways to look at things that uh, that hadn't really been thought of. One of the things I, I write about now, I've written in a couple books was the idea that um, if your opponent is making an obvious mistake, you should not play the perfect exploitive strategy, but rather only play the the exploitive strategy maybe 80% of the time, and the other time play the theoretically incorrect strategy in order to keep him from learning or, or, or noticing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That, so there's an example of using some psychology. I mean, I gave an example in of, of the tournament I won where in draw poker, I, when I opened for the size of the pot, the my opponent was only calling with a pair of sevens or better. So I was getting even money on my openings with nothing. Mm-hmm. And he was only calling with the top 25% of his hands. So it was an insanely correct play to open everything. He's only calling 25% of the time. However, I didn't do that because had I been open, had I opened everything, he would start to realize that he's holding too much. So I, I would throw away 20, my worst 20% of my hands to keep him playing incorrectly. And this is something I went into. This is, you know, combining psychology with game theory. I've never seen that particular concept written about, you know, purposely playing a little bit bad to keep him playing bad rather than to teach him. And I just, I I notice things and then I write about them. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I I found that specific example that what you just mentioned so fascinating and 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 so beautiful because you know in the modern age where we get too bogged down into what the solver says and what is the actual strategy that we're supposed to execute, oftentimes we forget that we're not playing against a solver. We're not playing against a GTO, right? So. As you've mentioned already, if you just merely execute the perfect <coughs> strategy, you're not necessarily maximizing your um, win rate. What you're making sure but is yes, that you're but... not exploitable. That's about it. But you know, with an example that you just mentioned, were you to 
open 100% of the hands, which would be the correct strategy, well, guess what? Maybe you lose the customer, so to say, because your opponent catches on to it and stops uh, making his mistake. On the other side of the coin, though, the, the poker players used to be only exploitable. They didn't even... They didn't have. They didn't know the default strategy, mm-hmm. and didn't know there was such a thing as a default strategy, and um, so they were making a mistake. So what I, but what I wrote about was combining two different aspects of poker: the taking event, knowing their um, their proclivities, knowing how they play, but also <coughs> keeping. Keeping in, excuse me, keeping in mind what the game theory solution is, mm-hmm. so you don't stray too far from it, or know that, or at least to know that the further you stray from game theory, the more, the more risk you may be taking that you've misevaluated the how how bad he plays or how incorrectly he plays, and right. you, you better not stray too far because that is. Um, you know, that also could be a problem. Uh, hmm. You know, and I've, I've tried to, you know, come up with uh, as many uh, such, um, you know, such situations where, where I don't think that it's been fully uh, understood what is, uh, what should be thought about, mm-hmm. you know, about poker and even about other things. I mean, even about like, the, for instance, the, the election that just happened. Mm-hmm. Two days ago, and they're talking about uh, why did Trump do better than the polls? Well, I think that, and 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 their argument, what they're saying is that there were a lot of people lying to the to the pollsters that they wanted Trump and they wouldn't admit it, and that may be true. But I I, I happened to I thought of something that I don't think has been mentioned very much. I think that there's a lot of people who just barely know anything about politics. And the only thing that they did notice the last few days is that Trump was willing to do the 15 rallies in three days or four days. So that's the only thing they knew about either one, that he was, that he had the energy to do that. Mm -hmm. And that might've swung two or 3%. And that might've been the reason for the polls being wrong. And I'm just using that as an example, not because I care about this particular subject, but because I guess my father trained me to to always just wonder what is going on here? What's really going on? Is there something that people aren't thinking about that um, they could do? And of course, in the book, I have about 25 ideas for the world, mainly just based on logic. And common sense, as far as I'm concerned, are based on common sense. And yet, for some reason, people, they're set in their ways. They, they, the average person likes to think that once they've come up to a, the normal solution, that they can be done with it and they don't have to continue to think about, might there be a way to improve upon this? The average mm-hmm. person is a sort of allergic to... They, they want to be able to say, oh, okay, I've got this over with. Now I don't have to think about it anymore. That was never me. I always used to like to say, what is it? Is there something that can be done here? Is there something that people are missing? Mm-hmm. Let me just think about, you know, like even with the COVID thing, should, should there possibly be, and in fact, it's happening in England finally is where they're actually 
getting volunteers to young volunteers to infect themselves. So that way you don't have to wait for randomness. There's all this different, there's just a lot of different ideas that are not explored. It seems like the average person just would rather know that it has been solved and they don't have to think about it anymore. Hmm. And I always was the opposite. I used to like to think, is there something? Right. And I think the the best example of that is that time when you caught on to that advertisement, right, where only two people found the exploit. Because the default response from anyone would be, oh, well, the corporation has a new promotion. Well, good for them. How many people actually go into the details, go into the math and start thinking about, you know what, this doesn't make sense. Surely there's a mistake. Right. We, yeah, most people just automatically assume that if the person is offering it, if the, if the company is offering it, it must be, they must have figured it out. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't occur to them to look at it for a minute and, or, or see is there something that can be done. And I'm not the only one who has done these kind of things. I mean, uh, <clears throat> there was a couple that I heard made millions finding a flaw in their state lottery somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, and the average person just says, well, if it was now it's funny because with Bob Stupak, he was considered so crazy. He was able to um, overcome that problem. So when he offered uh, some of his games, like the, the one I told you about with double exposure 21, where they show where he showed the whole card, basically he showed mm-hmm. the whole, his, the dealer's whole card. And, um, he only paid even money on blackjack. And he won ties. So, but you played against two up cards. Well, he didn't have to worry about this syndrome of people saying, well, as long as if he's offered it, it must be right. It must be good for him. He didn't have to worry about that because so many people thought he was incompetent and crazy. And they mm-hmm. actually thought that he offered a game that was easily beatable and it wasn't true. His game wasn't easily beatable. And, uh, therefore because of his reputation as being nutty, then, uh, he, he made millions. People, people took limousines from Caesar's palace to play this game at his dumpy hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, you're right. If people, if people, uh, offer something, most people just assume that it must be okay. And, um, I'm less likely to do that. Uh, of course that gets me into trouble because I'm always being skeptical of when, when an, an expert says something. Yeah. I know that that doesn't, I mean, one of, one of the more famous examples that has nothing to do with me is the um, ulcers. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but forever people thought that ulcers was caused by too much acid or and stress. Turns out it's caused by a germ. And a doctor... You know, everybody assumed that everybody else knew that it was caused by stress and and acid, but it wasn't. It was caused by a germ. Mm-hmm. That's just something that they found out recently because some doctor wasn't willing to just accept that uh, people, 
there's so many things, you know, you'll see that on, on the news that they'll just keep on saying what someone else said, what someone, someone else said. Nobody even bothers to think about, might this be wrong? There's a few, though. Few people do that, but not nearly enough. Yeah, you're right. And it's a such a skill. And speaking of skills, you know, I, I really like what you did with your probability book, the probability and statistics for 12-year-olds, uh, and maybe you, as you put it in the That's title. That's the, well. the, the name of the title, yes. Probability and statistics for 12-year-olds and maybe you. Yeah. And it's, and it's such... written in a, in a different way than any other math book. I It's written like in a conversational style. Right. And as simply as uh, I can make it. Yeah. What was the part that you liked? Uh, I didn't go through all of it, but uh, I skimmed through and just picked up a few parts that I was mo the most interested in. And it, there was just one part which I think ties in with what we were just talking about, where you talk about the coincidences and thinking oh, yeah. of coincidences okay. uh, matching up, right? It's basically on the same um, idea, you know, of looking at some events that people normally wouldn't even try to connect or dismiss as unimportant and you just see them in a different light to most people. Yes, but although I'm really just applying Bayes' theorem. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I mean, the simplest way to describe what I do is I try to find situations where you could apply more math than people think. Uh, the, um, you know, it could be whether to go for a first down in football or whether to punt or whether to, I mean, they're starting to do this now too. All these things are finally starting to happen, but they didn't, they didn't, um, even consider it back in the day. Mm -hmm. And, the, and when somebody did want to, broach the possibility of using some math, the coaches would make fun of those people. Again, they're finally not doing that. They're, they're listening to people like that, you know, whether you should, you know, go, whether you should bunt or whether you should go for a first down, even in soccer, which, which I assume is your game, right? I mean, that yeah. would be the game that you're more in. Yeah, that's true. But one of the things that that um, that has been discovered is there's a game theory situation in soccer. Are you familiar with it? I, this is not my idea. This I, I read about this in the in the book um, in in the, um, what's that book by the economics guy? Uh, Freakonomics. Okay. One of his Freakonomics books. He mentions that on the penalty kick. Not the mm -hmm. penalty kick. The, the at the end when they is that called the penalty kick? When well, you, when when the, the tie breaking kicks are those called penalty kicks? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, in the penalty kicks, so basically, the um, assuming you don't miss it yourself, you're it's it. The only way that you're it's going to be stopped is is if the if the goalie guesses right and jumps in the right direction, he still might not stop it, but at least. If, but if, if he doesn't do that, you're you're guaranteed to make it. He has mm -hmm. a chance if he guesses right. That's basically the way that situation works. Right. Yeah. He, 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 but well, obviously, also the the opposing player can just miss. But 
Yeah, but that's different. Yeah. But here's the thing. If you if you kick it straight up the middle, um and he's jumping to one side or another, you're gonna make you're gonna make it easy. You're not even taking any chances of mm. losing. Yeah. But the so the the goalie should at least sometimes not jump. And you can prove mathematically that it's actually a probability problem. And I don't know whether they've they've adopted it, but it turns out that that um, the goalie should occasionally not not um, move, but it also means that um, you should occasionally. Because he's usually jumping, you should you should go up the middle, but nobody does that because they they look stupid. They both look stupid if they do that. Because mm-hmm. if I just hit it right up the middle and he hasn't moved, someone's going to say, "What did you do? You just kicked it right into it." Anyway, people do these. They 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 are not willing to to pay attention to the statistics, whether or not you like in basketball. Almost certainly, a person a, a player will uh, be able to improve his free throw shooting if he practices shooting underhand. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, yeah, but, I, I knew that. I think Ma- Michael. But they don't do that because they, they don't want to look like. was talking about it uh, recently. Okay. Yeah, yeah. These are all things though that people resist for one reason or another. Maybe for psychological reasons, or or maybe because they don't they don't um, want to look foolish or something like that. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a. Uh, children's girls basketball coach for like an elementary school that um, he knew almost nothing about basketball and his kids were, I think they were Asian and they, they were not used to playing basketball and they were less talented than their opponents. But these were like eight year old girls, right? So he took, but he, what he did is he, he taught them to be, very concentrate very hard on defense and now defense is part of the game but i guess there's sort of like maybe neither side usually plays strong defense when you're an eight-year-old girl he taught them to play strong defense and and basically the other team never scored his mm-hmm. team became like champion because he, he found a, a a trick that uh that worked. And um, again, he thought outside the box. A lot of this could also be described as thinking outside the box. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more to be said for thinking outside the box, I think, than that people realize. That was one of the knocks against Trump that I didn't think was a, was a good knock. Like for instance, he said that he want maybe we should buy Greenland right mm-hmm. now. Maybe, that is ridiculous once you look at the the details of it. But when I when I heard that he had said should maybe we should buy Greenland, when I heard that I considered that to be an attribute of Trump's. Even if it turned out to be a stupid idea, the fact that it would even cross his mind. I think that that's a good thing that things like that cross your mind. You know, in this particular case it was ridiculous, but mm. I guess it was ridiculous, but maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And and most people are very happy with the status quo. 
in their brains. They don't like the idea that there might be a better way to do something. And uh, of course, that's in my book. I talk about various things. Mm. And actually, in your uh, book, exactly it. on that that topic is that story. I believe that was about Jeff uh, Yass, um, the billionaire, right? Yeah. If I'm not mixing mm-hmm. up the people, but I think there was you talked about some situation in Seven Card Stud. You explained, oh, yeah, right. You explained the situation to him, and then he goes on to ask, and what about eight-card stud? Which is, on That's the surface, right. a ridiculous he, question. He was, he was like 24 years old. He said, what about eight-card stud? And it was a beautiful question, because he doesn't... He, there's no such thing as eight-card stud, but it was... But he knew that if he knew the answer to eight-card stud, it would give him more of an insight into what he was trying to find out. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, and, and now he's a billionaire. In fact, he did it. Jeff, he, he was one of the first people to make money in the options market. Uh, and, and now there's a lot of people who are doing it, so it's a lot tougher, although he's still doing very well. But the funny thing is, Jeff, even as he, even as he uh, became super wealthy in the options market, he still enjoyed finding other ways of making money. And he continued to make money by betting pick sixes, which is where you have to bet win six, all six races mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at, a, at the racetrack. And so, and sometimes there'd be a million dollar prize because to win six, six races in a row was not too easy, very hard. But he bet so many. He bet a certain number of combinations. But he only did it when there was what they called the carryover, uh, so that he would have a mathematical edge. So he only did it when, when his um, the amount of money he bet, were, or, or rather the probabilities of hitting were, gave him an advantage, uh, because the carryover made the jackpot so high. Mm-hmm. Now it turned out that he was making a mistake. That he did he he was miscalculating how big of a carryover he needed, and um, I showed that to him. And I don't know exactly how much more money he made because of what I showed to him. But 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 it was an interesting concept, and it was a concept that Stanford Wong missed in his book but that's also described in my book where Stanford Wong makes a mistake about pick six carryovers and um, uh, it wound up being something that I was able to help Jeff Yass with little kinds of even some of the guys who are really smart they sometimes they 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 become set in their ways such as Edward Thorpe with a blackjack question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but after yeah. I wrote about what it hit. What, you know, the, the, those two stories about uh, Edward and uh, Mr. Wang, the, the fact that they made a mistake is fine. Everybody makes mistakes, you know, it's, it's fine. But what you described, which which is surprising, that they failed to correct themselves or failed to 
admit that, okay, I made a mistake, let's fix it. Especially when you know that their work, their publications were influencing, influencing decisions of a lot of people. Seems like a pretty bad thing to do. Well, that, that wasn't exactly what they did. They, they, in the case of Wong, what he, what he did he, is he sent me his manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I saw this error. So this this was this puts me in a bit of a bad light, but that's just the way it, it goes. I saw his error, and I said, and after I read the manuscript, I said, "I've seen a I see an important error." And if you mention me in that I, if you mention this incident and my name in the book, you know, where he could have said. You might think that such and such and such and such, but David Sklansky pointed out to me that you can't because of such and such and such. Mm-hmm. I will tell you what the error is. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, I'm, I'm willing to give you an acknowledgement that you helped me in the acknowledgement section. I said, nope. <laughs> you either, I said, you, it's a pretty big error. And if you won't mention me, I'm not going to tell you what it is. And so he called my bluff. I guess he didn't think it would be that big of an error. And he wrote the book with the error. So I don't know. Was I the bad guy there? I see. See, there, there's the, the the Trumpian part of me, and that felt like <laughs> I had that much. I thought I I thought I I had enough leverage where I could get my name mentioned. He wants to mention me in the acknowledgments where no one ever reads it, mm-hmm. and it was an important error involving pick sixes. Now, in the case of of uh, Thorpe, Thorpe um, was asked. Why does the player have an edge, the player, when there are no tens in the deck? None. Did you know that, by the way? I don't know. How, do you play blackjack at all? Uh, not, not that much, but I, I read the story in, uh, in the book, so I sort of right. understood the gist of it. Yeah. So anyway, so he, and, and, and his answer was, well, the computer tells us that. I don't think you would win if you played normal basic strategy, but the computer not only gives you the, the edge, but it also assumes a basic strategy that it calculates. Mm-hmm. And I said, and he said, so I said, you have an edge if you play the new basic strategy. I don't think the original basic strategy would give you an edge. And I jumped all over him because I, I said, what do you mean you don't think it would give you an edge. Obviously, if you played normal basic strategy and there were no tens in the deck, you would get absolutely destroyed. It didn't, I mean, you you didn't even bother to stop for a second and think about that and realize that. Mm. And he, from that point on, he hated me. But I was right. He, 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 he because he, he, he should have realized that. And, and then I went further to say, by the way, why would you have, and, and uh, in the book, I said, I, I gave it, uh, as a little bit of a, of, a, of a logic problem. If it is true that you have an edge, if there's no tens in the deck, how is that possible? What can you deduce from that? Just from pure thought without knowing much about blackjack. And the answer is the only possible way that you could have an edge is if it is correct for you to hit 17, hard 17. Mm-hmm which is the answer. That is why you have an edge. If there's no tens in the deck, you don't, you, you don't stand on six on 17 like the dealer does. You actually hit 17. And because of the math, that turns, but you didn't need to know the math. You just needed to know 
that fact. And from that, you could deduce other things. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I mean, I was really amazed that 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 Thorpe didn't, um, you know, stop for a minute and, and think about it. You know, my, when my father would give me a, a math problem when I was eight, nine years old, or a puzzle, not always exactly math, it could be a logic puzzle. And I didn't get it immediately. I couldn't think about anything else until I got it. I just, I mean, I would go into my room and I would just stay there until I got it. I couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't function until I got the answer. So hmm. I guess that's something that, uh, you know, I inherited from him. But um, the average person is just letting, you know, I don't know the answer and they let it, they let it slide. And that, that, in that one way, I'm more academic than most academic people. If there is something that I find interesting, if I do in fact find something interesting and I think I can figure out the answer, then I try to figure it out. Like for instance, um, if you add up all the cubes, you get squares. If you add up the perfect cubes, you get squares. Uh, did you ever did you know that? If you add up all the cubes, if you add up cubes, you start adding up one cube plus two cube plus three cube plus four cube. Yeah. So you get one plus eight plus twenty-seven. Well, every time you add up, you get a new square. One plus eight is nine. Plus twenty-seven is thirty-six. Plus oh, wow, eighty-one yeah, know that. is one twenty. Mm-hmm. No, but wait a second, you didn't know it. But now I just told that to you. Okay, but when I heard it, I couldn't do anything else until I knew why. I couldn't just accept it. I mean, I literally couldn't. I mean, I couldn't eat until I, I figured out why. Now, there's a couple ways of doing it. You can do it with something called mathematical induction. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing. I didn't like that way either. I, I needed to come up with a geometric proof, a geometric proof, because, in other words, a, a pictures where I could take the cubes and unfold them and get squares. And I did it. And, and then I was happy. But it, I mean, I, I couldn't, my days, I, I did function, but my, my days were obsessed with getting the answer to this problem uh, because I, I don't like to not know why when I've thought of something. It's interesting, that particular problem, I once did a, the Poker After Dark. Have you ever seen Poker After Dark yeah, on yeah, of course. TV? And, mm-hmm. Well, they had a Poker After Dark with all the mathematicians, quote mathematicians. It was mm-hmm. me, Chris Ferguson, Bill Chen, Jimmy Warren. Uh, I forget the names of the other two guys, but there were six, there were six mathematicians. And you know, we were encouraged to have conversations. Now I was by far the least educated of them. They were all PhDs or close to it. Mm-hmm. And I had a year of college, but I kind of knew that in the back of my mind, I mean, none of them could hold the candle to my father. So I had that, the, the that one thing on them. Plus he used to always talk about all these interesting things. So I said to them, why do the cubes add up to squares? And it was like, like it was sort of like a, a gamesmanship because I wanted that to distract them to not play mm-hmm. as well. Why did the cubes add up to squares? And 
None of them seem to care. But then on the break, one of them, one of those guys was sitting at the table working on it, doing the mathematical induction. And that was Chris Ferguson. And so immediately I said to myself, okay, well, this is, this is the guy who probably is uh, going to be most successful because it bothered him, just like Jeff Yass wanted to know about about uh, eight-court stud. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is, though, I get a lot of heat. When I, when I bring up hypothetical questions like, what about eight-part stud? What about if we did this? What about if, if we changed all this? I, a lot of people say, why are you bringing that up? That's not, that's not going to happen in real life. On the other hand, they don't seem to mind uh, the book, The Mathematics of Poker, that talks about all these toy games. Toy games give you some insight, similar to the Jeff Yass question. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna, we both get one card or three cards or whatever. And um, what's the way, best way to play that? And it should give you some sort of insight about something sometimes. Hypothetical questions are not bad things. Mm. Absolutely. And we are so quick in general nowadays to to just put a label on something and move on, right? Like like you said, for most people, or for myself, that was definitely the case when you said, uh, you know, about all the uh, cubes summing up to squares. I was like, okay, that's very interesting. Just as you said, I would, right? And in this context, I, I really like, um, I believe Richard Feynman uh, had this quote um, along the lines of, that you could know um, the name of the bird in all the languages in the world, or all the possible languages. But when you're basically when you do that, you know absolutely nothing about the bird, right? Mm-hmm. You, you just know the name of the bird, and that's it. The label doesn't explain to you anything about you know what does this bird eat, where does it fly anything about it right and so what does that knowledge really give you right for example well i get you know i don't know exactly what is being done with this with the with the the covid researchers but i know that for instance i don't hear about what certain things like take them take the obvious fact children almost never get a serious case right Mm mm-hmm that that's one. I mean, it's incredibly different. The difference between a ten-year-old and and, and an eighty-year-old is is insane. Well, as far as I'm concerned, once we know that, we're supposed to be spending a lot of research figuring out why we should we should know as much as possible why. Because once we know why, there's a chance that we will be able to come up with something that. Helps the eighty-year-olds, and I don't hear very much. I'm, I'm sure there are some people who are they speculate, and maybe a couple of people are looking at it. that. Should be a major thing. We know of millions and millions of people who who never get a, a serious case. We should know every little thing and do every possible thing we can to figure out what could it be. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't think that's happening enough. Stuff like that. That's just. I mean, the way I approach stuff that. And the way my father approached stuff, but but for some reason, again, as I said, most people think, well, that's someone else's 
problem or somebody's going to worry about it. Somebody else is going to do it. Exactly. Right. How do you think your father encouraged uh, your love for solving the puzzles? Besides the fact that he, he, two things. Number one, he, he was very familiar with what would be the puzzle that would be that, that I would find enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And number two, he would, he would show such glee when I got it right. And he would show such, uh, he, he, he just was so excited about it as he would talk about it. You know, he would think he, he would just be so happy at talking about it and then showing it to me. Very first thing he ever showed me was, was the famous problem that Gauss did. This one, I think I'm going to bet, you know, this one, how to add up all the numbers from one to a hundred in your head. Oh yeah. I, I encountered that problem several times and it was in your book and I don't remember. It was in my book. Okay. It was on your book. I don't remember. Uh, right, right. It was in my book. But I, I would figure now. it out in like a minute because yeah, it, it is a beautiful solution. Yet, uh, yeah, but not the, the most the, obvious. The point is that whenever he would teach me this stuff, we're getting into, and he was always switswitching back and forth. It was never just oh, actually, for, a certain for, type for of problem. I actually oh, remember that, and I just smiled. Yeah, because like oh, it is beautiful. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but but he would, he was always trying to teach me, and and in some cases he. He would talk about stuff that had nothing to do with math. Like, the, like I remember he, he he just wanted me to understand the way the the world is and the way people are. Like he talked about how one of his coworkers, who was three hundred pounds, came back from lunch and there was a meeting, and he came back with a bunch of candy and he and he offered the candy to everybody at the meeting. And so my father said, "So what's going on here?" And, and I said, I don't know. He said, well, because he wants to feel less guilty about the fact that he wants to eat candy. So he wants, he's, sh- he's giving it to everybody else so that, he, so that they'll eat the candy. And now he'll feel like he's just being a normal person. Just little things like that. He used to, I was like seven years old when he pointed this out to me. Mm-hmm. Another time he, he took me on a ride out in the, in the car. It was just me and him. And every time we saw somebody outside, he'd beep the horn and wave. And they always waved back as if they knew him, even though they were all strangers. And he, you know, explained to me, well, the reason they're waving is because even though they don't know me and they're pretending like they do, is because they don't want to take a chance that they really do know me and that they insulted me by not waving. So the much greater uh, the much greater error would be to not wave at somebody they know than to wave at somebody they didn't know. So that's why they do it. That's when mm. and we went to like, we, we, we just little things. He was constantly making me think outside the box. And, and, um, that's, you know, that just, mm. I stayed with me all these years. Mm. It's very interesting. And that the example that you just brought up is also just such a beautiful illustration of our default response. Like, first of all, sure. It would be a bitter, bigger mistake not to wave back. Because you might offend your friend, but also we are just accustomed to assume that the other person is right. Our default assumption is that they know what they're doing. They recognize me. They wave to me. Yeah. So why would he be waving right. to me? Yeah. Exactly. So I'm I'm supposed to know him. Yeah. Yeah. And, but but you know it, it wasn't a big deal. But it was just I was just an illustration. I mean, every day it was like he wanted to find one new thing to teach me. Sometimes it was you know, mathematical, sometimes it was logical. Sometimes 
it was um, just a piece of knowledge, mm -hmm. you know, uh, about uh, the world. Like if you go straight up, if, if you if you go straight up in the air for about uh, well, far enough, you're going to hit China. That's not exactly true, but it's close. It's but but it's sort of true. I mean, the universe is fourth dimensionally curved, and I mean, again, I was seven years old. But each day, you just tell, just come up with something, and uh, so I always was thinking about what's what's going on uh, that way, and then. You know, then for a while he was pretty upset about me being using all these talents he gave me to be a professional gambler. Mm. Eventually, though, the books made him change his mind. The books made him change his mind. All right, interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I eventually did something, accomplished something. It was mainly luck. This is, I mean, this was luck. But still, I, I have, I have a something that I can say that I think only about three or four other human beings can say, which is I had three books at the same time on Amazon's top 100. Now, the only other person I know for a fact who has done that is J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. With uh, the Harry Potter but, books. And they yeah. were not, yeah. But they were, during the poker boom, when that first started, I was, I mean, they weren't high up. They were like 40, 60, and 80. But three of the top 100 books being sold in any subject was was uh my three top books mm. so uh you know when that was going on my father started to get to, to, to be proud of me in fact he became more proud of me than he deserved than he should have been uh, if he had only realized how simple it would have been for many highly educated uh, mathematically oriented people to have written almost as good a book as mine. He might not have been uh, as proud. Mm. I mean, so many of the things that I wrote about were, I mean, I once I once was a, a host to a math professor who had come to town and wanted, and was told to visit me. And I took him into a casino for the first time. And he just, he couldn't even believe what he saw. He couldn't believe all these people you know, not understanding EV and not understanding that, you know, they they put a dollar in a machine and they're going to get 95 cents back on average. He mm -hmm. couldn't understand how people could do this. Why would, how, how is it possible? But, um, and so there are, there are a lot of non-gamblers who are, who are pretty well versed. Mm -hmm. Those, that parlay card thing that I, that I knew, I would say there's probably, five million Americans who had they read the ad would have realized what they could have done. So that's that with that at least two or 3% of the population would have seen it like I did. It right. just none of them were in Vegas. They would, what? Right. But you know what? I think with that logic, there's one, one, one uh, problem. Um, Cause we talked about it already. We default to truth, right? For example, mm -hmm. I don't know if you play chess, at all, but in chess, there there's one way to have fun in chess or to study chess is to solve chess problems, right? You you are presented okay. with a chess problem, and you have to solve or find a beautiful sequence of moves to achieve something, right? Now right. it's all great 
when what you're doing is solving chess problem, you know you're looking for a beautiful solution. When you're playing the game of chess, you don't necessarily realize, hey, this is basically a chess problem. There is a beautiful solution here. There is something that I can find out, right? Unless somebody tells you. So when you frame right. so the, the problem as, the you, know, you know, if you would give that advertisement to 5 million people, the ones that you think would be able to solve it, if you give, it, if, give them the ad and say, well, tell me what's wrong with this and how you can exploit it, sure, most of them will give you the correct answer. But give them the ad and don't say anything, I don't think that many people would caught on. Right, I understand. That's basically true. Although it was so bad a mistake mathematically that uh, that there would have been plenty who had just said, what? I mean, but you're, you're right. Most people just wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to them that there is a way mm-hmm. to, uh, or that there might be, or that maybe we should look at this or, or uh, come up with uh, some, some little, uh, wrinkle that um, others haven't thought about. Mm-hmm. I never, I, I almost never just say, well, oh, oh, that other people, uh, that I don't have to worry about it. With one very important exception, by the way, w- w- that goes exactly the opposite of what um, we're, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with things like picking uh, a horse or picking a, or picking a football game or picking a, uh, stock. Mm-hmm. And that is that since people are usually right about their opinion, it only takes you, you can be much less knowledgeable about the subject in general and do much better than they will when it comes to betting by using the, the, the technique of finding one thing that you know that they've missed uh, analyzed, analyzed incorrectly, and then assuming that they analyzed everything else correctly because they usually do. So in other words, if I happen to be at a bar and the, one of the players I see getting drunk the night before the game, I will bet against that team the next day without even knowing the rules of the game. And someone, and I will, and if I use techniques like that to, to, to pick my, my sport or my horse or whatever, mm-hmm. I will do better than someone who knows way more than me about the game in general. But, but, and, and what allows me to use that easy technique is the fact that the vast majority of the time, the other factors are being correctly evaluated. Mm-hmm. See, let's say, for instance, I had seen that ad about the dice, and I didn't know the rules of craps. I didn't know the rules, and for some reason, I wasn't able to find the rules. All I knew is that they were paying an extra half a bet eight out of 36 times. That's all I knew. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always a chance that that game was a 20% advantage to the house, and that wouldn't be good enough. Mm-hmm. But 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 in this hypothetical case where I didn't know the rules of craps, I couldn't find out the rules of craps, but I did know about the promotion, I would still bet. I would go there and I would bet, and I would go under the assumption that the rest of the game must be a small edge for the house, far below 
11%. So in that one, in this one area, I reverse myself and I assume like everybody else that, that all other factors are properly evaluated. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting, an, an interesting fact that there's an exception to, to that idea where, uh, so I actually take advantage of the fact that I, went, I, I piggyback off of the fact that most of the time people know what they're doing uh, in that one particular case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you have a list there of things that you would, that you would want to talk about? We, we've I talked about, we've, have we've been a jumping list, but you know what I want to get to talk about now? Cause we talked about the game theory. We talked about, you know, the strategies, et cetera, et cetera. But what we completely didn't get into it yet, which you talk about in your book a lot, is the crooked games, the crooked poker games in Vegas that you've been around with and, and, and seen those happen. Maybe let's let's talk a bit about that because I was, while reading, first of all, really surprised by the scale of how often that was happening. Surprised at first, but then, to be honest, not that surprised, <laughs> eventually. But maybe let's talk a bit about that. When was the first time you realized uh, that some games are not fair? I never realized it. I was told it. I was told it, and, I, and uh, without, and I would not have known. I was not an expert in 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 uh, catching cheaters and. I had, uh, you know, I guess I was naive or just assumed that if it's in a legitimate casino that these things wouldn't go on. But then I was literally told about it Mm -hmm. because uh, of the fact that cheaters, for one reason or another, uh, valued my mathematical abilities and were willing to tell me about things so that I would, wouldn't, you know, run into traps. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what, what happened. And more, specifically one particular person who I call Mark in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases I name names, some cases I don't for various reasons, but, uh, but there was a guy who I was making money for. He was actually, partners with me in the parlay card deal, mm-hmm. which was completely legitimate, but, but I didn't have the money to make, to bet all the combinations. And, um, he put up the money and, uh, we split the profits, but, and, and I also was making him money in blackjack. And, uh, meanwhile, that same fellow was staking people in various ways in the poker world to cheat in various ways. And he told me about what's going on. And um, so most of my information is secondhand, although I would make it 99% to be correct. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a couple cases where I was 100% because of conversations I had. And... Um, but basically, in the in the seventies uh, and eighties, in the bigger games, you were very apt to be cheated, 
sometimes by collusion and sometimes by more flagrant stuff like cameras in the in the ceiling and uh, cold decks, if you know what that is, and um, marked cards. And uh, I mean, they just every way you could think of, especially in the Dunes games and in the um, games and some of the games of the Stardust. They were it was you know that was going on all over the place. It was the, the the MGM had a whole scandal where they caught a bunch of people uh, dealing. I'm not even sure exactly that one would actually made the headlines, mm-hmm. but there were other things going on that that didn't. Some things to this day are uh, not known. Others, for one reason or another, as was known. But but in the big games, this was happening. And um, may still be happening. And nowadays, it doesn't. When you have good players willing to cheat, it becomes really scary because they don't have to do very much to have an edge. Uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised that there are people who are still making good money in. Um, in big games because uh, of the, of the ease. Uh, for instance, you're a pot limit Omaha player, right? You're, That's right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I want to go into the, into what could be done, but all I can tell you is that it would not require two players slightly worse than you to um, make certain deals with each other where they all of a sudden they're better than you. Let's put it that way. It would be pretty easy mm-hmm. if they, as long as they didn't make it obvious. I, I guess there there is some moral constraints on some people uh, to not do that. Maybe, but but there has always been a lot of cheating. In the old days, it was even more reasonable to think that would happen because the people who were cheating didn't have options to go into the business world and, and make money. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, everything you could think of was, was going on in, in the bigger games. And I, and I, you know, go into it hmm. in, in the book. Yeah. I it was, it was, it was, it was very interesting. Well, I mean, so, by the way, I mean, the, what, one of the things they did do is they did try to, um, not just me, but they tried to to steer the regular honest players away from the games because they <clears throat> they were valuable. They needed them to help build games, and they didn't want to cheat them. Mm-hmm. So, so the regular poker players back in the day weren't getting cheated too much, but the tourists were getting cheated big time. Mm. So. Uh, and plus, as I say, the you know supposedly, supposedly, I don't know this for a fact, for a hundred percent fact, but the supposedly the mafia was um, was backing much of this activity back then. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they would considering how much stake play. they had in the casino in running the casino, still even back then, um, it's not surprising, really. Well, yeah, mentioned- but they, they could have been. You go ahead. It was sort of separate. 
In other words, the casino had been, might be owned by one mafia group, and uh, it was another mafia group that was that was cheating the card the card games, and they might not even have known about each other. I, I don't really know. I, I never um, wanted to know. Occasionally, I'd, I'd rub elbows with with uh, people who supposedly were in the mafia, and on a couple of occasions without acknowledging that I knew who they were, they, they did me a favor once I was, I don't think I didn't mention this in the book, but once I got a great deal on a car Mm -hmm. because, uh, because one of the, one of their people was in the car business. So I got, I got a car that cost another time I was having, I, my ex-wife was being harassed by uh, a guy that you might call uh, by a real bad character, mm-hmm. a real bad character in in many ways, and and I mentioned it to the brother of of somebody who was supposed to be big, and I, I thought, you know, you know, this is really bothering me. He says, okay, don't worry about it. And <laughs> next thing, nothing happened to the guy. He was just talked to, but he never he he never talked to her again. So I mean, there's no doubt that there was stuff going on, but. I, uh, and that's how I know that of, of, of various things, including by some people, there's, there are some people who are considered to be honest, that there's no, there, there is no, um, taint. They are not tainted, but they're not honest. I didn't mention them by name because I only know about things about them secondhand. One and and there's a chance that I'm wrong, a tiny chance, but not enough that I don't want to write it. Their names, mm-hmm. one won the World Series of Poker because when it got down to the last table, they they you used to be able to stand on the rail, and there was somebody standing on the rail signaling to him what other of the players had. One of the very well-known winners of the World Series of Poker. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that in the book. I don't mention his name. And I wonder if he ever read the book and knows that I know about it. Uh, and then there's another multiple bracelet winner who I was told did various things. I was told that, I mean, I, I don't know it for a fact, but why would why would the fellow who was staking me have lied about it? Right? Mm-hmm. There's almost no way. So it was just, but but I didn't play that much. I didn't never played in the big poker games. Almost never. Mm-hmm. I played in smaller poker games. I played blackjack. I, I beat promotions and I wrote books. Stayed away as much as possible from the big games. And when I did play in the big games, as I mentioned in the book. I played a style that protected me from mild cheating, but gave me a reputation of being too tight. Mm. I didn't push very small edges because I, I wanted, I only would get in the game if the game was, uh, was quite good. And I knew that it was a possibility that something was going on. It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, poker, uh, if you know the game is honest, then um, it's a really neat game. 
although not as neat now because of the existence of game theory. Although you can, I think you can thwart game theory if you change if you played some different games. You don't you don't need to play simple no limit hold'em. And if it's, I mean, I think there should be more stud. I think there should be more crazier games like the way poker used to be when I was mm. a kid. People Which is pretty much the case didn't... nowadays. If you look at the games in the Bobby's room, it's always a mix. If you look at some of the other highest stakes games running, including mm -hmm. the high stakes games online nowadays, it's predominantly the mix. Okay, well, it's harder. Most of those games are harder to program with the. Well, first of all, that, but second, also, assuming that there's no real time assistance, it's just a lot of work to study let's say if you're playing eight games there's no way right. you're going to be an expert player in eight games right so everybody specializes in their own in their own field and it's a much more um challenging sort of discovery process when you're playing uh because very often you're 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 forced to think on the spot as opposed to right. execute That's the strategy that you sort of at least intuitively, already know. Well, thinking on the spot is just it makes makes things so, so interesting, and uh, and and that was always my specialty. So when someone wanted to challenge me to head up, uh, uh, I would say, "Okay, I'll play you," but that, but you, we have to play this game, and it would be it would be a game that no one had ever played before. You know, and make up a game, <laughs> or I'd say, uh, "How about this? Um, we both play two hands." I play you four-handed poker. I take two of the hands and you take two of the hands. And we collude w with ourselves. <laughs> That's a fair game, right? We're both, right? How about that game? I think I would probably play anybody in the world that game even now. Mm. I'm old and out of, out of shape, but I think I could play anybody that game because I've thought about, I mean, even, colluding is, is a, is a bad thing to do, but it happens to be an extremely interesting subject and from a theoretical standpoint, mm -hmm. right? What do you do? And especially, what about if I was allowed to clue? Like I said, I play two hands, you play two hands. Now think about that, how you would play those, those games. Mm. You know, I can check to myself and put you in the middle. You can know that I'm doing it, you know, this. I just think about weird things. Like here's here's a question that I actually put up on two plus two mm -hmm. that isn't obvious. If you and I are playing head up and we have amnesia after every hand, okay? We have amnesia so that we don't notice it. Mm -hmm. But one of us knows the other person's hand. I would say, I know your hand. And you know that I know it, but I don't know that you know. Who has the edge? I know your cards. Mm -hmm. You don't know my cards. But, I but know you, that you know, know that cards. I know your... Yeah. And I don't know that you know. Mm -hmm. And then after we play one hand, we, I, my, my, I mean, obviously, if, after a few hands, I would deduce that somehow you knew that I knew. <laughs> but I have amnesia. I mean, does, does, does this edge swing to you even though I know your hand, does it swing to you? Well, anyway, these are things that I think about all the time, stuff like this. Now, I'm almost sure I know the answer. What would, what would be your inclination on that question? 
Maybe it depends on the game too. But what would be your inclination? Well, yeah, it depends on the game, and it depends: are we playing a long-term game or is it the short-term game? What I mean is, are we playing just a few hands, or are we playing like the whole? Night? No, that's irrelevant because I like again. I'm gonna. I said we have amnesia after each mm -hmm. hand. No, we're right. We have amnesia after each hand. Woof. I mean, obviously, seems... if we were playing without amnesia, I would mm -hmm. quickly realize that you're doing something weird. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're doing something funny when I, you know, when I, you, you don't know what I have, but you know that I know what you have. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I would assume still knowing the cards has to give you the edge. Nope. Really? Talk me through it. I'm, I'm and if you think, well, think, I don't have to tell you. All I, all I have to do is say, if we if we weren't doing an interview, I'd say, I'll come back in five minutes and you'll change your mind after you thought. <laughs> all right, let's let's talk through this. Well, I mean, so, let's okay. Let's I, take a simple example. I know example. you know I mean, my if cards. I have... Right. So, what does it allow me to now, do? Especially if we're playing no limit. Especially, you would really want to play no limit because suppose, for instance. You had oh, but a, you, a weekend. But do I know that you don't know that I know? Yes, you know that. Uh huh. You know that. All right. So, but you know what? You know that I know your cards. Now you have a weekend. You have you have a, I don't know. I mean, let's say playing no limit hold them, and now there's you you, you have you have a missed a missed flush draw and and uh, king high. Mm -hmm. And now on the river. You check and I bet twice the size of the pot. You check and I bet twice the size of the pot. Mm. Now, of course, Wouldn't, if I, if I know that you don't time, know that, I know that, <laughs> you know, we go into this rabbit hole. If I know that you, do? you don't what, what, know. Wait, 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 think about it. You, 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 I bet you have King High. Yeah. You check, I have, and I have twice, and I bet twice the size of the pot yeah. on a river. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes absolutely sense. What should you do? Sense. Of course, you should call. Um, right. Yeah. But obviously, that's that's why I got confused in the beginning because I I missed the part that you the other player doesn't know that that um, oh Jesus now I'm getting all confused. Okay, but anyway, anyway the, point it is, that's makes not, sense. The, the point isn't the game. The game is not is not relevant because it can never happen in real life. Yeah. But or pretty much, but actually, it could happen. That's not true. It could happen in real life. But the but the real part is the amnesia can never happen. So if you you call once you made that call. I go, what's going on here, right? You, you, maybe he knows my cards or whatever, right? Yeah. But that's why you have to have the amnesia. That's not the point of the of, of the story. The point of the story is that here's yet another example of forcing you to think outside the box, hypothetical examples. What is it? What do these things mean? What could be done? And mm. and 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 that's always been right. It's well, let's talk about way what could things. be done because there was so much cheating back in the day in the games. I don't know how much of it is still out there. I mean, obviously, in the in some private games, we hear about these things all the time. Uh, in the major casinos, I would assume at least we're protected from the good old marked cards and for the most part from the technology because it does require cooperation from the floor and the dealer, which right. is increasingly the thing harder. Is the problem, though, is that collusion collusion is, 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 is uh, exactly. more collusion than enough. Exactly. Collusion can't do much more about than it. Enough to win. It's more than enough to win if, you, if, done, if done 
in a way that doesn't where you where you don't expose yourself if, you know exactly. if you're willing to uh exactly. not be greedy and, and that's, I mean, that's I don't think what it's you worth mentioned that much. already it might about be worth the two big pot- bets an hour what that that's what you mentioned already about uh, Potlam and Omaha because obviously with the knowledge of four cards and a ring of colluders it's in- increasingly easy you know with so much information out there luckily with the big games you know everybody that you play against, right? So there's this aspect of people having their reputation and which maybe creates a false sense of security because if, you know, the the stories that you've been telling about what was going on in the 70s, 80s, so many of the big names were actually not all that trustworthy in the end, which is painful, Yeah, not, not now. I want to make it clear. I don't think even half of the of the big names were necessarily uh, were ne- necessarily cheaters. Because, and you might say, well, how is it possible? How could they survive? And I already explained that they they survived because the cheaters realized that they were that it would be better to make them off limits. Uh, that if you but but most, I believe this here. This is just speculation. But I believe that most of the honest players were aware of who the cheaters were and chose, like me, not to say anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't say anything either. But um, I think there, you know, the completely honest play. The tourists forget it. They would. They had no chance because what you have to do is run into a crooked game once in a while, and and that would be it. Mm. So that was, that, but that we're talking about a long time ago, though. So I don't, I only know until about I don't know, nineteen eighty five or something like that. Yeah, uh, I don't, I really don't know what happened after that, and and of course, if you're playing in in, in multiplayer tournaments then that's why there's so many tournament specialists, I think. I think that the most of the people that you hear about as being the best players are tournament specialists and are, or you, as you say, eight-game cash game specialists. You really don't hear about that many cash game games, big games that are not, except for Pot Limit Omaha. For some reason, that one, I guess, is still being played high. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's you play, I mean, I I really don't know about that, but then maybe Europeans are less likely to consider. Maybe they consider it more dishonorable than Americans to to cheat. So they, you can just count on that hap- being the case. When you play, you're playing mainly online, right? Mainly online. I mean, obviously, I used to travel a lot to the states and uh, and play in Vegas and LA uh, and elsewhere. But obviously now with the current situation, mostly online or predominantly online, there's nothing else yeah. out there for me at the moment. But Well, I'm just guessing about what's going on now. The only thing I'm not guessing about is my understanding that um, that a good player with a little bit of extra knowledge uh, has more of an edge, I think, than the average person realizes. I, I once uh, went around asking people a, another hypothetical question. 
I said, suppose you're playing in the World Series of Poker. You're playing, let's say, deuce, triple draw, well ball, at the tournament. And your first card is a deuce every time. Your first card is a deuce every time. Plus, you know it will be a deuce every time. Mm-hmm. Your first. If it's a thousand player tournament, what's your chances of winning this tournament? And 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 the answers I got. I mean, I can't prove. It would take a while to prove it, but I, the answers I got were somewhat something like one out of uh, thirty or something. I believe that you're close to even money in a thousand player tournament. Mm-hmm. So if you were able to get a deal or to give you the deuce every time, you mean that you don't need that much of an edge or suppose you knew where the three of clubs was. Once I'm playing eight games and, and I know where the three of clubs is. That's the only thing I know, but I know that every hand mm-hmm. I'm the world's best player period. Even though I'm slightly rusty, I, there's nobody who would ever, if that was part of my powers, I have the power to know where the three of clubs is. There is no body who would have a chance to be, be do better than me playing poker. Mm. Inconceivable. If you think about it a while, that's why I'm saying it doesn't take that. So if you're a good player, of course I would use it to the best of my advantage. I mean, I probably would know, think up of things that the average person wouldn't think about, but do you know where the three clubs is and they don't know you know? Now, if they knew that you knew, then that would be a little bit tougher. But if, but if they didn't know I knew and I'm playing in a ring game, and how would I not be the best player? So that's why I've always been a little bit nervous about... Um, but, and that one is not so hypothetical because what about if I know how to wait? I, I mark the three clubs and that's all I do. I'm not greedy. I just mark the three clubs. Mm-hmm. So that's... Unfortunately, um, a fact that has kept me away from ever trying to make giant money in cash games. And uh, I think a lot of other people, too, when they stick with tournaments, best players, are, you know, eventually the tournament rather tournaments are, uh, are worth money. Hmm. Except well, you have to use different... There's also yeah. a bit of the publicity part about it. The tournament players are welcoming the publicity, whereas the cash game players have nothing to gain from publicity. Well, that's another reason, of course. But I'm just saying you can you can live in a world where there's cheaters running around and it's not so big a deal if you're playing tournaments. And if you're a very good player, even mm-hmm. forgetting about the publicity, you probably have a, a positive EV um, in in most tournaments. I mean, let's take the big tournament at the world series of poker. The, the best player in the tournament, whoever that might be, what would you estimate his, the value of his $10,000 buy-in is? Well, in the main event. Yeah. at the main event. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't have a strong opinion about this. I'm just curious what you would think. Whoever happens to be the best player, hmm. what would? That's a tough one because the fields are so huge, and since I almost never play tournaments myself, I never had to deal with solving these problems. So I, I'm completely, completely clueless to this. Yeah, I, I think it's probably about thirty-five thousand, twenty-five thousand hmm. profit. 
Okay. And that seems reasonable. And therefore, and there's probably, uh, out of the, out of the 7,000 entrants, there's probably a hundred players that are over 20,000. Probably are. Mm-hmm. Still though, you know, that, but that's a little bit of an exception because it's this six day, eight day tournament. So you have so much time to let your skill matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So therefore you can play, you can make decent money playing tournaments because anybody who's good enough to do that probably could have made other money doing other things I was saying. But mm-hmm. if you're like me and you like, uh, and, 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 and you don't like to be wearing ties and whatever, <laughs> of course, there's still a lot of other ways of making money without wearing ties, especially nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to be an electronic en- engineer the, and, and design iPods, then, then, that could have been it. But I, my books make me not regret the choice I made. But I do want my my more recent books to be less about gambling and more about maybe using gambling ideas to come up mm-hmm. with 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 ideas for th- with things that should be done. Mm-hmm. You know, like my handicap parking idea or my idea for exonerating innocent prisoners and um some of them, I think, are so obvious, and yet again, people have gut reactions to say that nah, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. My handicap parking idea is the one I've been pushing for fifteen years. Put a put a. Um, do they have handicap parking in in Europe? Yeah, yeah, sure. Put an expensive and and, and do you find in Europe just like we do here, where there are many places where there is almost no use of the handicap parking and, and people have to park uh, a, a, a pretty good distance away because there's, and um, get a little bit annoyed. And meanwhile, there's all those open spaces and handicap parking. Is that, does that happen in Europe too? Mm, I would assume in some places probably, but for the most part, I think it's pretty well planned out. In a, in a way, okay. That, well, in the United know, States, there's all these places where there's, and, and and so my suggestion is that you take half of those parking spaces and you put a meter that is uh, fairly expensive, like maybe a dollar a minute, and allow rich people to use them, use their credit card, use them, make most of the money go for to, to help handicap people, let the rich people. Um, and this is in my book, a few different places. Let rich people spend trivial money for them to help other people. And don't worry about the fact that you feel like it's unfair that only they can take advantage of it. That That is a silly feeling, especially if the money is, is, is enough. So in the case of handicapped parking, and let, you know, every once in a while, a handicap parker, a, a real handicap person, might find he has to wait a few minutes to, to park because one a rich person is is using that the handicap spot that has a, a meter on it. The vast vast majority of the time, it would have been a space that was just empty, and now it's earning money for handicapped people. What's wrong with that idea? I, it just seems so obvious. Yeah, well, it it is obvious, and the gut reaction that people are getting is also understandable. Uh, if it's executed correctly, 
It's a good idea. The gut reaction, look, the gut reaction that is, is even in Russia, as you remember reading, even in Russia, when they were communist, they were willing to do this. In the book, I mentioned how there was a two-hour line to get into a museum for free. I'm with a lady I met in Russia. I'm beside myself because I don't want to wait online for two hours. And she sees that I'm upset, but the, but the museum was having a Salvador Dali exhibition. So everybody was willing to wait two hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm saying to myself, she said, well, there is something you can do. There is something. And I said, what? What? She says, well, you can pay $7 and, and, and get to the front of the line. Or they have a special line, but you got to pay $7 a person. This is about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so obviously we did that. But the point was that even the Russians were willing to. If, if you were willing to pay what to them was an exorbitant amount, they were willing to uh, put up with somebody being, you know, a capitalist pig. Mm. Now, if yeah. they had only charged one dollar, then I could see where, I mean, that's enough money where the average person wouldn't, still wouldn't be able to afford it in Russia. And now they would resent you. But if I'm going to be stupid enough to pay seven dollars, let them do it. Someone wants to pay a dollar a minute to park in a handicapped parking lot spot and I'm in a handicapped person and once a year it's going to cost me an extra two minutes meanwhile they've accumulated millions of dollars that are going to help buy me free crutches or whatever it's worth it and there, there's so many little things in the real world that 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 are susceptible to logical thinking that are similar to gambling thinking or poker thinking mm-hmm. and um that's, and, I, and I have about 20 of those ideas in my book. Hmm. But just to I expand mean, the other on, pet- on the idea of the handicapped parking and the museum analogy, I think what we run into is a sort of emotional problem of if one is willing to pay for the Salvador Dali exhibition, regardless of the amount of money, let's say it's actually a huge amount of money. You know, let, Let's say you have to get you know pay like six hundred dollars for the entrance still you're paying for the museum museum gets the money and in the end you're just getting the same exhibition as everybody else right whereas with the handicapped parking place usage there's the social stigma of oh you rich pig you're using a place which is supposed to be for a handicapped person how dare you? And in, in some ways, that's very true. So when I said that, you know, it all matters, like the execution is really going to matter. You have to make sure that the money is funneled specifically for the needs sure of those of people. It's, it's very simple. All you have to make sure of is that the amount of money is high enough so that handicapped people would be in favor of it. Mm. Again, then it puts a price on their wishes, and it if a collective agrees, that that's as always, you know, the problem of getting the people to agree on on what's best for them collectively is a pretty hard problem to solve. If the num if the amount of money is enough that the vast majority of handicapped people will switch from 
hey, I don't like the fact that rich people can occasionally inconvenience me too. This is great. I, I mean, let's take another example. Let's take the example of, uh, I suppose they had, and I think they even have this now, where you, when you wait online to be, to be checked at the airport, suppose they had a line where you could pay $100 to get through and there's hardly anybody on the line because very few people want to pay $100, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that $100 is used to reduce the, the price of your ticket. So you may have to wait an average of one minute longer every time, and now your ticket is down, has been reduced by $15 because of those $100 bills that they're collecting. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, as long as there are things that go on in this world where rich people don't care at all about the extra money, they'll, they'll, pay, they'll pay for the convenience, or maybe they won't, but if they want to pay for the convenience, as long as they're willing to pay for the convenience where the, where the upside overcomes the downside, but there, there are people who are against it simply for, like you say, emotional reasons without looking at it from a, as a utilitarian. They just say, no, nah, that just isn't, that just is wrong because it's wrong to, to make it so obvious that rich people have an advantage over poor people. I, I don't think that's a good enough reason. And the, this, the other big idea that I have that I've been pushing in a couple books now that has a gut reaction against it, but it's so easily disproven is that there are thousands of guilt, of innocent people in jail right now, thousands. And that are in jail for long periods of time and have exhausted their appeals. And in some cases, the real perpetrator of the crime is is alive, knows about the fact that someone else is in jail and knows that, and and, and it's been, and, and this person in jail has now been officially deemed, forget about any appeals, they're all over with. When that happens, even though every once in a while can backfire, but it doesn't matter if it backfires once in a while, you should let the person who committed the crime confess. And if he can prove that he did it, the guy gets out of jail and he gets amnesty. Now, a lot of bad people still won't do it, but there are some people who, if they, they, they get the weight off their chest. They get the worry that the, somehow they might get caught. And now an innocent person is freed from jail. How can that not be the correct strategy? And the reason why some people were against it is because it leaves such a bad taste in their mouth that that guy who did the crime has now gotten amnesty. But it doesn't matter because we have decided in, that 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 convict that putting an innocent person in jail is an, a much bigger no-no, a much bigger sin. So even if once in a while there's something they could scam it or something happened, it doesn't matter. The, the arguments against this idea don't hold water. Mm. Yeah, that's How true. can you not? What? Yeah, that's true. That, that, that is a actually great idea. And, um, you know, hopefully a dialogue starts about it. And uh, that particular idea isn't one that would require you to be a conservative or uh, or a liberal either. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's just automatic. We we don't convict people if there's a chance. 
We'd rather we'd rather acquit a person who's seventy five percent to be guilty or even ninety percent to be guilty. So in this particular case with this program, and by the way, if someone does uh confess to a crime and then you can prove that he didn't do it, he goes to jail. The other guy stays in jail and you go to jail too. So it wouldn't be some people were saying that they could try to scam it. This was this was my favorite one because because logically it's it's unassailable and yet emotionally it bothers a lot of people. But if they think about it, it's especially nowadays where it's become more and more clear that there's a lot of guilty people in jail. They're letting people out, but the ones who are getting let out are the ones who are lucky enough where there was DNA samples. Mm. Those are the only those are the only uh, guilty people who are getting let out. And even when even those people are numbering in the dozens, I think it's not more. Uh, there's got to be at least a thousand people uh, that are in jail and they even have pro- that's something called the innocence project to get them out. But, and it's true that if you offered amnesty, then probably only a fairly small percentage of, of the guilty people would, would come forward. They, they, they might, they have reasons to not come forward, but I think that that plenty would enough would you might be able to get a few hundred people out of jail. It's, and it's all based on the thing about this is that these ideas are, it's not because of my, I'm uh, upset about guilty people in jail. Okay. I'm not mm-hmm. going to claim that I'm a person who's super upset about that. They just all stem from thinking about how do I use the various techniques, thinking techniques that I've gotten good at when, a, when, a, when uh, I hear about a problem. So when I hear about people who are guilty being in jail, instead of me saying, oh, that's terrible or not terrible, I think about, wait a second, can I use my thinking techniques to figure out what to do here? And in this case, mm-hmm. it's an obvious one. This one, I, don't even, I, I can't even believe that it hasn't already been done. It's to me, it's so obvious. And then I, you know, I have about a uh, fifteen or twenty other ideas that uh, just to me seem obvious. Some of them are trivial, like if you if you're winning by three points in basketball with eight seconds to go, and and the other team has the ball, I believe that if you intentionally foul them, it should be a three point shot, not a two point shot. Yeah, well, yeah, with those, as always, yeah, I'm just thinking about because, you know, anytime there is some change to a sport, there's so much resistance. So I know, but resistance. think about this one. The reason why I have that this idea, that one's not that big. The reason why I have this idea is because it seems extremely wrong that what is normally a wrong thing to do, jump, you know, banging into a guy, mm-hmm. gives gives him a two point shot and now you got the ball and now you won the game. Yeah. Should, yeah. So that seems like, but the, that's an example of a, I mean, I, I sprinkle important things with non important things. That particular one I think is, uh, uh, obviously isn't important, but I, I'm constantly seeing things in the world. And I say, wait a second, you could do this or you could do that. You know, Mm. Or, or you you could pay somebody twenty five thousand dollars to get infected with COVID, and now that and 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 now you can be, to be willing to, and now you can so now you can take that guy. He says, yeah, okay, I'll take twenty five thousand dollars. Now you find out 
Do you have to be in the presence of someone who has it for, for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or what's, what's, you know, they're talking about 15 minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, but they can't really be sure because, because they, they're not willing to do the experiment. Mm-hmm. Well, normally that would be a very unethical thing to do that experiment, but you have this weird, weird disease where, where older people are a hundred times more likely to have a, a bad result than the younger person. So you give the younger person twenty five thousand dollars, and he and 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 eventually he, he so he probably gets infected. And meanwhile, he has doctors working on him. I mean, I don't understand this. Because people have gut reactions to things because their first reaction is, "Ooh, I'm going to make the guy get the disease." Well, first of all, he's going to probably get it anyway. But again, it's all part of the general technique I try to use to uh, come to conclusions. And I, and, um, you know, somebody like you appreciates it, but you wouldn't believe the number of people. There's a lot of people who were against it because in my opinion, they know that they don't think this way and they would, they don't want to give too much credence to a person who does. So it's just just like the people who don't want to use math to figure out the, the best strategy to play a sport. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the almost always when 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 somebody criticizes ma- mathematical reasoning to come up with the best strategy for a sport, the person who is doing the criticizing knows that he wouldn't have come up with this. He, that he doesn't have the uh, ability or the knowledge to come up with it. So he wants to downplay the usefulness of it. He doesn't want the team to hire a statistician or, you know, somebody who's good at probability to figure out when you should actually go for a first down mm. or all that stuff. Well, luckily, a lot of that is changing nowadays. David, let's circle back to what we were talking about before, because I know we've been already at it for quite a while, but uh, I still want to dig a bit deeper into the cheating that was going on. And also, okay. I found that story about uh, the bet between, was it Larry Flint? Larry Flint. Larry, Larry Flint, Flint and, 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 and Brunson. Yeah. That sort of ties in with the cheating, yeah. right? And I'm very interested. Mm, sort of. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a off the, it's an off the normal, beat, it's off the beaten path. It was. It's a story that it's the one secondhand story that I was willing to mention the person's name mm. because um, it is such common knowledge that I, and furthermore, not only is it common knowledge, but I think that Larry Flint is almost proud of it. Plus, he wound up failing. But <laughs> yeah, that's Larry Flint, Larry Flint, the, the, uh, publisher of Hustler magazine was a beginning poker player, but he was very rich. He would sometimes come to the, to a cash game with a million dollars in cash. And so the $10,000 of the world series of poker was no big deal. This is early in, in, in the history. So there was only about, I don't know, 40 players, something like that. And, um, Doyle, laid him a million to a thousand that he wouldn't win it. And, uh, 
seemed like a good bet on Doyle's part because I mean Larry just didn't didn't really understand the game. Although he was willing to be aggressive, he certainly wasn't scared of anything. But he, he didn't understand the game. Mm-hmm. And um, after the first day, he's in the lead. It was a three-day tournament, I think, at the time. And after the first day, he's in the lead, which was seemed very strange. And uh, of course, Doyle wasn't very happy about this. And coincidentally, Doyle and had told Larry that two days earlier that he he could learn a little bit about poker by hiring me for a one-hour tutoring session. And um, Larry did do that. And um, so after the first day of the tournament, I went there. I don't think Doyle was that anxious to have me do it after the first day, but it had already been arranged. I go into a suite and I, and I give him a lesson. And because I realize I'm playing, I'm, I'm teaching a complete, uh, beginner. Uh, I tell him, you know, be anxious to, to move in free flop as much as you can and try to do it with an ACE. I mean, I, um, felt, like he had no chance unless he got lucky with all in moves. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, I, I remember that. And I mean, he had like four giant bodyguards there in the suite. But anyway, the next day I'm at his table and, um, Larry continues to win. Not, he doesn't beat me, but he continues to win. And in a couple of cases he moves in and the other guy folds and, um, he flashes an ace to me, show me that he's paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. And Doyle says to me, is there anything wrong? And I said, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I guess thinking back, it looked some, some strange, slightly strange hands. But then later on in the day, I don't exactly know how it happened. I know that, that later on in the day, Doyle says to him that our bet is off. And, and Larry agrees to that. And, and then I don't exactly know the details of how it was all found out, but it, it, it became common knowledge that Larry was going to people of not Larry himself. It was another guy named Ken Smith, who was a chess player and, um, and a poker player. And he was going up to people who, who were at Larry's table and buying them out for the amount of chips they had in front of them. In the old days, with the ten thousand dollar buy-in, got you ten thousand in chips, so it was simple. Mm-hmm. So if they had thirty-two thousand in front of them, he'd, they'd give them forty-two thousand, and they would have to find ways to dump the money to um, to Larry. And um, I wasn't approached. I didn't know anything about it, but I didn't I didn't catch it. I guess I it really didn't occur to me that it could be cheating. Also, so there would have had to be something pretty pretty odd. But anyway, that's what it was. They and so Larry had. Um, I mean, Larry took a pretty big loss on on this. I don't know how many people he brought out. I it was at least three, and um, somehow the perpetrators wound up confessing. Uh, it may have been under duress because Benny Binion would put people under duress sometimes. And, and and anyway, that was that was the story. Larry Flint. Now Larry Flint was such a rich fish that 
I mean, under normal circumstances, if somebody had tried to pull off this off and had been caught, he would have, you know, had to pay a lot of consequences. But apparently they just let him off with a laugh. Well, it didn't work, Larry. And uh, most likely he went on to lose millions and millions of dollars to poker players. And, um, but he, yes, he thought he would, he would pull the wool over. He was willing to, to cheat Doyle out of a million dollars. He was willing to do that. And, uh, you know, that doesn't put him in that, that, that's a bad thing. But I think all that was 30, 40 years ago. And I, I'm almost sure all was forgiven. You now he wound up to, he wound up owning a casino running a, a game once a week and he was accepted in the poker world. And I'm almost sure that everybody who accepted him knew the story and gave him a pass. You know, I think to him, it was just all a fun thing. Can I, can I beat Doyle Brunson by using it? You know, sort of like Andy Beal. I didn't write about Andy Beal, but I'm, you know, I'm sure you know who Andy Beal is. The guy who was, playing the incredibly high head up games, the banker, the billionaire. Yeah. So you know, they, they wanted to be able to say that they beat, they, they beat it, but it was a true story. I mean, 99.99% to be true, but I had nothing to do with it. Some people I think worried, wondered, you know, I tutored him the night before and the next day I'm at his table. Thankfully, he didn't bust me. I don't. He didn't. That would have added more suspicion. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but uh, that's just one of the things that happened uh, in Vegas over the years mm. back then. And speaking of back then and the big games, you've mentioned earlier that most of the big games were crooked and targeting the uh, tourists. Yet you also mentioned that, in your opinion, most of the big, well-known high-stakes players that we all know and love, they were never involved in that, uh, in that part of the business. Why? How, how well, did that happen? I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as far as to say that most of the big, big games were crooked. But okay. I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how many were because I didn't. I wasn't ever in those games, but I. What I think happened is that when when there was a tourist, the, that the non-crooked players didn't play. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly how this happened, exactly the, the exact details of that, I don't know. What I do know is that there was a camera in, I shouldn't say no, and I'm again, 99%, that there was a camera in the ceiling mm-hmm. and that they would bring in cold decks sometimes and that they would collude a lot. And um, the players who were honest, I'm not sure which ones were honest and which ones weren't. It's possible that virtually none of the, of the regulars were honest. It's, it's possible. But, I, but I, that much, I, um, that's just a guess on my part, what percentage. Mm-hmm. I know the names of several, and I'm giving the other ones the benefit of the doubt. In at least one case, in at least one case, I mentioned someone who was known to be honest. And after I wrote the book, someone said to me they weren't honest. Now they could, but that, that I was wrong, that he was a cheater also. 
Mm. So who knows? Exactly the who was cheated and when and what was done and under what circumstances, I, I don't know. I just mm. know that the whole card room was crooked. Right. And that there were lots of games. Mm. Whether more than half the games were crooked, I don't know. If I if I wrote that, I, I don't think no, I actually perhaps, wrote perhaps that. Perhaps you did. Perhaps I, it's wishful thinking on my my part to. I don't think I wrote that most that. of the games are crooked. I really, right. I really, I mean, sometimes these guys would, you know, they all had money and they play against each other and they and they played honestly, mm. even though they were cheaters. Because in a lot of cases, the reason why cheaters cheat is so they can have money so they can play honestly. Mm. I mean, some of the most notorious cheaters were actually with, they, they would cheat outside of Vegas and come to Vegas and then play honestly and lose all their money. There's a, there were a few that were well known for that, mm. that they were super cheaters, uh, but not in Vegas. The, all, the details, I don't know. All I know is that the cheating, the cheating business was mainly conducted at the dunes at the, and that the eventual money went part of it went to supposedly the mob. Part of it went to this guy, Mark, who was also, who was also, uh, staking me. Part of it went to the card room manager who I mentioned by name, but you're not asking me for his name. So maybe I shouldn't mention it over the, on this thing, Pretty well, a very well-known player. And, um, the, his assistant who I don't mention and, um, and then the cheaters themselves, how, how often they would make use of, of what was available to them. I know they had at least two cheating dealers that I know of. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm 99% sure there was a, there was a peep in the ceiling and like with the mark cards, I actually saw the mark cards. These were mark cards that were odd you had to unfocus your eyes to see the markings. Hmm. You may have seen some of these paintings where you do that, yeah. where you, and then the, the, uh, the cold decks, I'm not sure exactly how, to, how they put it in. And, and then the collusion, you know, that could have been going on a lot. You know, there's, there's very, very mild collusion that they even accept, which if, if players take pieces of each other in a game and don't, don't signal their hands, I take 25% of you and you take 25% of me. In theory, if, if we're in an eight-handed game and all the other players are equal to us, we're going to, uh, we're going to be the favorites because if we're smart, because if you have 25% of me and I have 25% of you, even if we don't tell each other our hands, and even if I'm still playing for 75%, there will be times where my strategy should change or your strategy should change for the better. And that money that we win comes from the other, other players at the table. Mm-hmm. Even if it's, we're doing something as simple as that. So, you know, I might be slightly more willing to not raise you out. I and mean, that's one of the big things about, about collusion Three-handed pots, the guy on my right bets. You're my partner. You're on my left. I will, in a fair game, will be raised, trying to raise you out a little more often than if, than if I have a piece of you. Mm. Yeah, that's in fact one because, thing that Bill Perkins recently was asking about, whether 
you know, what's the opinion of the poker world on these things happening? Because that occasionally happens, uh, maybe frequently happens in in the private games, right? Where people would have pieces of each other. Yeah, and I don't even have to know what you have. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what you have, let's say, but still, it's still, it's one extra thing that keeps it from being equal. I can, there will be occasional times where I would consciously or subconsciously take advantage of the fact that I have a piece of you. Mm. So even that shouldn't be allowed. But that particular thing is allowed a lot. And the reason why that's allowed, I believe, is because there might be one, there might be a rich tourist who wants to play higher than the average, than, than those other players want to play. Mm-hmm. So they swap pieces, yeah. unbeknownst to the tourist, and they don't do anything seriously wrong. But even that's, uh, you know, enough. Mm. It's, it's 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 a shame. That, I mean, the way you get out of it is you play tournaments and you play head up, and there are people who have made their money that way. Mm. Doug Polk against Daniel Negrano is one guy plays tournaments, one guy plays head up. Yeah. They're both multimillionaires because that's what they stuck to. I mean, how, okay. it, you would know better than me. Are there people who are right now considered wealthy because of the last five years of playing cash games? Yeah, I would say so. Not people who were wealthy because of before that, I'm saying that have made a bunch of money playing cash games. Yeah, only. within the last five years, yes, I would say there there's quite a few people who amassed some okay. reasonable well, uh, money. Then, yeah. well, then maybe they, uh, okay, then maybe they weren't cheated, or maybe they know how to avoid funny looking games or something. Mm. You know, well, maybe I, they're. I guess, uh, I guess one of the. As always, you know, game selection is a huge part of the whole thing. If you can get yourself in a good game and hopefully a clean game and you are by far the better player, well, you're going to be making a lot of money, right? And right. some of the games I mean, in Europe, some of the games in, in Russia have been incredibly good in that sense because, you know, the skill level is uh, somewhat low. Live cash? You talking about the live games or... or- Online, no, no, it's live games. I'm speaking of live games and online, oh, online there's... as well. There's, there's a uh, plenty of players. Well, plenty. That's probably uh, <laughs> what what is the definition of plenty in this context? But there's, you know, a, a decent number of players who made very good money in the last five years, within the last five years, uh, playing online poker. Well, you know, I, I, okay, that reminds me. I was becoming friendly with. One of the famous, I'm not going to say who it is, but one of the famous big shots in, on, for one of the internet sites, right? And we were talking a little bit over the phone here and there, and, and uh, he mentioned to me that there was one country that was ahead, that was w- winner, small country, that was net winner for the whole country. And um, I said, they're cheating. I don't care. It has, they have to be cheating. I mean, they're, they're, maybe they're just colluding, but 
it's impossible that that many people, I mean, I think he was talking about hundreds, if not thousands of players, and they were net ahead total. Mm. And what so, country are we talking about? Have, what? Which, which is the country? Which country was it? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you. Maybe, uh, but but if you, if this is enough of a hint that you will, that that you will be able to identify who I'm talking about, please don't say it. Right. But I'll tell you the country. Estonia. Okay. Does that? Well, by, by the way, does does that tell you anything? Not really. No. In in okay. the context right. of anyway, that was online. This was about six right. seven. This is a while ago. It's a while ago, but it was Estonia. Mm-hmm. Estonia was ahead. For, I mean, for indefinitely, they were ahead. Okay. I don't think they're that much smarter than anybody else. Or you might say, well, people in Estonia really tried hard. I don't, I don't believe there were too many people. Mm-hmm. So, they, but they might have done, you know, just small things. I mean, like the kind of thing that the smallest kind of thing that you could worry about in pot limit Omaha would be, you get all in, and when you get called, you don't win your fair share. You move in and you get called and don't win your fair share as if, but, and, and, and when you see the other person's hands, it looks like it, he really shouldn't have called, but it was close. Mm-hmm. So it could be that he knows that none of the four cards that, that there are four cards that, that don't help him that were in someone else's hand. That could, right. Mm-hmm. That uh, is a, 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 a trip. That's not a big deal, but, it, but it, if every time you move in and you get called by a hand that's on the borderline, uh, and you're and and now you're losing in those situations, where you're supposed to where you're supposed to uh, not be losing. The the uh, could be that he his four cards were enough to swing it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you yeah. know th- th- those th- those are things that uh, that that happen. Uh, I, that I'm sure is happening. I'm sure those things are happening. Those things, because those things could happen without there being uh, uh, organized cheating. It could just be that, uh, for instance, you move in on me and my friend is in the game who I'm normally just playing normal, but you move in on me and I quickly call him up and I say, George, uh, did you have any hearts in your hands? And he says, no. And, and now it's worth taking the two to one on the flop or something. So these are yeah. all things that, uh, and he's not, he might not even think of himself as being a cheater. He's just helping you out a little bit for this, helping me out for my all-in situation. Mm. Well, I'm pretty sure they they both know they're cheaters. It's it's pretty blatant. Well, I mean, okay, I, well they don't. They both know that. Okay, yeah, right. They 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 know they're that that they're not supposed to do it. Let's put it that way. But they they're not. But they're not part of a cheating ring. I'm just saying some of these right. things could even happen right. on the spur of the moment. Or they right. just made an agreement. Will, will, uh, but mm. well, and that's another it, difference with live poker and online poker. You know, the spur of a moment in live poker when you're dealing with these people, especially back in the day when you were dealing with some people who were connected. You don't do one thing and get out. You're on the hook. You do one thing crossing a line, and that's basically it. You're not getting away from it anymore you're you're on the hook and people like mark who you've been talking about and people who he was connected to obviously would make sure that you know basically now you're 
now that you're in the team now you're there too well that's uh, <laughs> that's not i'm not sure exactly what you mean by that you're saying that if they when they recruited somebody to, to cheat now he has to cheat forever well forever that's, maybe not forever but you know that i've i've know yeah I, i know of several occasions where people who got involved with some activity with the mob basically it doesn't mean that you're now cheating forever but you occasionally get called upon to continue contributing to the whole thing okay well i don't i don't know if that's uh here's the thing I don't think they would have necessarily done that, but there would have been. But there's no way of knowing because if a person had agreed to do that, why wouldn't he do it again? That's because true. he got religion. That's true. But um, so we don't even know. But I, I actually, I don't even think that that's. If somebody did say, you know what, I, I'm too nervous about this. I'm going to start playing, twenty forty, and 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 because I get nervous about what, what they would say. Okay, they wouldn't care. As long as he didn't tell anybody, mm. I, I don't know of one poker player who has ever uh, who has ever been harmed by the mob mm. or in any way or threatened. <clears throat> I don't know of anyone. I, I've never heard anybody say that they threatened me or they want. Uh, well, the, I shouldn't say that. The the one guy who ran the Dunes card room supposedly. There's stories that he was, but he was, that's a big difference. He wasn't just a poker player. If you want to be a poker, if you want to just get away from it, that they would, but the, the problem is that if you didn't play in the big games, you couldn't make that much money. And if you had played in the big games and you already were, were willing to, to, to do it and you want to continue to play in the big games, why would you, why would you all of a sudden say no? So, mm. Yeah, now, now right. that I think about it, you, you're right. In terms of the poker players, I don't actually know any of the stuff. But I know of stories with people involved with dealing uh, the cards, especially some, some dealers who got involved, and they're basically on the hook for, for the whole thing. I guess maybe. Yeah. But anyway, the po poker players were always just considered... Um, Uh, there's a word for that, but they're they were just working for themselves, and I mean, and if they, if for some reason they didn't want to keep on doing it, then they they were they they had no obligation. Now, where they right. did have an obligation is if if they were if they were jumped off behind. I mean, some of these some of this trading stuff didn't guarantee a win, and if you if I was staked and I lost thirty thousand for them. I couldn't just say forget it. I'd have to get win that thirty thousand back or pay it mm. back. Right, right. So in that case, I guess that would happen. But and and as a, also the mob thing, you got This is another important fact. The poker players never talked to the mob. There was an intermediary. They never even. They never even had to know that they were that they were that the mob was involved. Probably some of these players didn't know. Mm -hmm. Like when Mark first started taking me, I didn't know that he was giving a part of his end to the mob. I'm not even sure he was in, in like the Parkway cards. As far as I know, he, did, he didn't give it to them. I don't think he did because it had nothing to do with them.
And I and I don't even know if he ever and I didn't play poker for him, so it's so I don't even know if any of my money went to the mob. I don't think it did any of the money I won. But 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 nobody, the poker players didn't didn't play for the mob in the way you're talking about. The, now the cheaters may I mean the dealers might have. Mm. And I knew the in fact the as I told you the only there were basically three brothers who were. Almost everybody knows who I'm talking about, but I'm not going to name them. There were three brothers. One was famous for being in the mob. The other two brothers were, played poker all the time. And whether they ever did anything with it, their their bad brother, I don't even know. So there was there was a. I mean, it was generally thought that they that the this one guy was the person who was giving Mark money, and Mark said he was. Mark said he was. Mm -hmm. So he told me that he did, that you know that he was getting staked by that guy. I'm quite sure he was, but he didn't have to be. I mean, I'm 99.9 .9 sure he was. It was he was his he was being staked by one of the quote families, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he was taking that money that he was being given to recruit poker players. But it was actually Mark who did all the organizing. And Mark most definitely was not in the mob. He was just a, an ex-attorney, I think, who somehow got involved with him. I don't even know exactly how he got involved with him. I don't know that story. Mm-hmm. The reason I got involved with Mark was because one of the other poker players that he was staking knew me for a while and said, you know, if you, this guy might give you money. And it, and, and how I even, how I even ingratiated myself with Mark before I even knew he was involved with the mob was via a proposition that I wrote about because it was mathematically interesting. I wanted him to stake me in blackjack and he didn't know that much about blackjack. And so I proposed that I, that, that betting one or $200 a hand, I get paid nothing and, and except it, only on money above and beyond th a $3,000 win. Because I assumed that he would realize that that pretty much guaranteed that I was telling him the truth when I told him I had an edge. Because if I was just hoping to get lucky, I would never have gotten $3,000 ahead. And at the time, there was an easy way to make money just playing at Caesar's Palace. Caesar's Palace had super good blackjack rules. So that convinced him. And... He staked me, and uh, I won about 10000 and then I got bought from Susan's Palace. But we're, again, we're talking about the 70s or 80s. Mm -hmm. And that's how I knew him. And, but then other things came up, other opportunities came up where, well, specifically front-loading, where you could see the dealer's whole card. I mentioned that in the book. It was one of my naughty things that I did, but it wasn't illegal. It was just naughty and it wasn't hurting individuals, just hurting the casinos. And everybody else who knew about it did it. 
Now, I don't think there was one human who knew about this method of seeing the whole card who said, oh, no, I'm, I can't do that. That's wrong. <laughs> there, were, there was a way of finding dealers who, when they dealt their down card, you could see it. If you had good eyes and you sat in the right spot. So when I was told about this, I went to Mark and I thought, well, I might as well tell him about it too. And he was enraptured by this particular ploy. And I got in even further good with him. I don't think he even told me about the poker cheating until I did this. Mm. I used to, I mean, I rubbed elbows with, with, uh, with very sketchy people. I back then, way back then I rubbed elbows with very sketchy people and none of, not one time did their sketchiness ever hurt me in any way in the sense that, that, they asked me to do something I wouldn't want to do or that they told or they gave me an order or anything like that. There was never anything like that. And it was like they just appreciated that they had in their stable a smart guy. You know, a guy good at math. They felt that that was a nice thing to have. And that so, was a nice thing to have, to be honest. Yeah, that, well, it was a nice thing to have, and, and and what they did in return, and if they hadn't had decided that they didn't want to see me going broke and leaving town uh, because I got cheated, they would, that was the reason why they told me about stuff that was going on. Maybe sometimes they did it to brag because they wanted to say, you know, we're kind of smart too, because look what we did. We blah, 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 we had this and blah, 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 right? Mm. So you're smart in your way, we're smart in our way. Don't, don't look down on us. It was almost like that, you know, mm -hmm. the, that they would occasionally talk to me about stuff to um, for their own self-esteem. Mm. And that's what that's how I know about. That's that's not the only way, though. I had a friend who had a friend who knew who, who was their electronic advisor. They had a, they the, the person who did their electronic cheating was a friend of a friend. So I heard about that. And my ex-wife, by sheer coincidence, when she was very young, was taken under the wing of a guy who cheated in, uh, in the Alabama, Tennessee region. Didn't come to Vegas, but she knew about stuff there too. So I heard I heard about, a little bit about stuff from from that. Mm -hmm. So I. But not, but none of it, it was all very indirect, you know, I, and I never needed to know extreme details because I never was involved. I just needed to know enough to avoid getting cheated myself. And in some cases to, um, cause I just wanted to break to me or something that, that they knew something or they knew how something happened. Hmm. And that all went away by about 1985. I mean, we're talking about a long time ago. The only thing is that that it did involve more names than the average person realizes, including several names that are now in the world, in the Hall of Fame of Poker. So one of the things I mentioned in my book is that I was asked if I care, you know, to be in the world, in, in the Hall of Fame, or at least to be a nominee, and I, and I turned it down because I did not... Um, 
like this, some of the people that I'd be sharing that, that honor with. I never even thought of that much of an honor to poker. I, I always thought of poker with some, uh, a little bit of shame involved, you know, like I'm not supposed to be doing this, you know, and, and that it's not almost not right. You know, that I'm using mathematical talents and logical talents mainly to make money in a non-productive way. I don't feel that way so much. And now this probability book that I wrote and then the upcoming algebra book will completely erase that feeling. Mm-hmm. And the UCY did a pretty good job of it. And and this other book was I have stuff in there. I mean, there's, there's stuff in there that uh, somebody's going to read one day and say, and then we got to, we should implement that idea. And, um, other people will be happy about it. You know, the book has every, all these different kinds of things. It has ideas. It has a chapter, as you know, on lot the logic questions that my father gave me when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a chapter, you know, on, on all kinds of different way ideas for things. And, um, anybody who reads this book will be happy that they did. It's, uh, to me, it's inconceivable that somebody will say it wasn't worth the 10 or $15 for this book. I mean, literally nobody. Oh, especially because right now, it's available on Amazon Kindle for free. Uh, so there's really no excuse not to go ahead and, and get it's, one. It's r- right. It's for free if you were a member of the Kindle deal. Right. Yeah. right. So the, And there's, I mean, all, all it takes is, is, is one chapter one idea, one thought that you can use that pays that pays for this price of the book. But the fact is that it's, um, you know, there's going to be many chapters. There's probably going to be a few that irritate some people because I, I'm not sympathetic enough to people who never bothered to try to learn probability. I, 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 I refuse to be sympathetic to people who got themselves in trouble because they didn't want to learn basic logic and basic probability. Mm. And I have, as I said, I have no special, especially then if they went, if they become arrogant and try and think that they can, they can um, win or, or make fun of. That's another thing is a lot of people make fun of those people. I just finished reading a, a post on one of the sites where somebody was making fun of, uh, you know, the statisticians mm-hmm. and like, I don't need to know that or I don't, need, I don't need to do that. And it used to be all the time in poker that people would say, you know, poker's a people game and you don't need to know this other stuff because they're all broke now. A hundred percent of them are broke. It's, unless they're playing in tiny games. Mm. There's just you. You cannot get away with. Um, you know, Daniel has, has done that too. By the way, I think uh, he is. I think he. I think he's coming around. But he used to. He used to say, "I don't ever want to see the word EV. Please don't ever say the word EV to me." Mm. <laughs> but you, you, you gotta, you gotta understand it now. Yeah, I think he's coming around because he realizes he he sounds foolish when he says that. But for a while, people people didn't want to um, 
believe that that's important. Hmm. And none of this stuff is that hard. Almost none of it is is hard. I mean, I what? got in. I wrote in the book. Of, yes. No, go go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt you. I got. I wrote in the book about an incident with the with doctors from Harvard who made an error in their in their newsletter. I think I wrote about it. Yeah, I did. I wrote in, about uh, how I got annoyed with doctors in Harvard who made an in, who made an error. I wrote them a letter. They acknowledged their their error, but then in the next newsletter, they did something that made me so mad, which was that they they acknowledged their error and then they said something like. Um, but, you know, that the, the doctors, doctors are not supposed bit. to be statisticians and they don't necessarily yeah. have to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they were saying that, you know, you got to excuse us. I mean, we're worried about more important things. But the, <laughs> right. see, that would be okay if what they, that, that would be a reasonable uh, point if what, the, if their error, in, in, if in order to have not made the error, they would have had to spend months learning something. They could have learned it in one day. In one day, they could have learned it, and they didn't. And, and they didn't learn it. They chose not to. They chose to. To uh, it's a very famous error in statistics. I don't know how you want to talk about it, but it's, they they chose not to. So don't tell me that that uh, that they didn't. That wasn't a, a reasonable excuse. Most of this stuff is very easy, or, or relatively easy. It could be learned in, in a week. Most of the stuff could be learned in a week, and that's and the stuff that I'm talking about. You can now. It's very if you want to learn it in a week, what do you do? There's only one thing to do, right? Buy my newest book. <laughs> exactly, and you learn yeah. it in a week, <laughs> right? So for those people who want to who want to learn, I mean, I don't go into everything, but but I, I go into how to do. Of course, I I do, and even in this book, though, I get controversial and I get mathematicians mad at me because I do certain problems differently than the way you're supposed to. Because it's better, my way is better, though. There's 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 logical tricks to um, to how you would do it. So I mean, I'll give you a very simple example. We're playing uh, a freeze out. And I have three dollars, and you have one dollar, and we flip coins for a dollar. We flip coins for a dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the chances that I'll bust you versus you busting me? I have three, you have one. Well, the typical mathematician would say half the time I bust you immediately, right? And the other half of the time we go back to we both have two. So they would say you're, there chan- the chances of 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 uh, me busting you is half the time, one half plus a half times a half. In other words, half the time I win immediately and half the time I'm even money. Mm-hmm. And so that seven that comes out to three quarters, okay? Seems like a good enough way to do it, but there's a better way, especially if the numbers get more complicated. You can use pure logic and say, we're flipping coins. Since we're flipping coins, neither one of us has an edge. Okay, so that's number, and and now, whenever I win, I win a dollar. Whenever you win, you win three dollars. So if we do this multiple times, logic says that we have to break even. Neither one of us has an edge, and in order for for us to break even, I have to win three out of four times. I don't have to do that algebra. 
I can do it by pure logic. Mm-hmm. See what I did there? I must win three out of four times in order for us to remain even after thousands of freeze outs. So I do, I do some problems like that instead of doing it the algebraic way, even in this book, and even some of the mathematicians don't like it, but I'm always looking for cleverness rather than learning or memorizing a formula. Mm-hmm. I never, I mean, do you know, I don't know what the associative law is. Now, you learn that like in third grade, and they keep on telling you every year. And I can beat at least 99.9% of people even to this day on the on the math SAT. But I don't know what the associative law I mean, I, I know approximately A plus A. Plus, this, I mean, everybody knows it but me. Because I don't memorize things. It's lot, the associative law is completely logical. I know what the commutative law is because it's just too easy not to know it. But I don't memorize anything. I, uh, 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 except sometimes I can't help it because I've used it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, like Bayes' theorem is a good, really good example. The way I do Bayes, did you happen to see the Bayes' theorem? Yeah, I skimmed uh, through it. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the way... There's, you know, if you ever read, if you ever learned it in school, you have all these these formulas: probability, and then parentheses of a over b or slash b over pr- probability of b over a plus b. You know, they they give you the formula, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't in my book. I don't even. I never give any formula. I just talk about it logically. I say that Bayes' theorem is is if something can happen in in two different ways and there's a probability for both, then if it does happen, it's the ratio of those two probabilities. So if if the Yankees are 20% to win the pennant and the, the Red Sox are 10% to win the pennant, and, I, and you know that it's one of those two who won it, but you don't know which one, it's two to one to be the Yankees, two thirds. That's Bayes' theorem. That's, I never used any formulas. Mm-hmm. And uh, also I, I sometimes stop short of giving them the answer because I want them to think about it. Or I use a, a really strange technique. I, I gave questions that needed permutations and combinations to answer, but that chapter comes before I tell you how to do permutations or combinations. So I don't teach you how to do permutations and combinations and then do sample questions. I give the questions first and say, I want you to see why if you knew the, how to do combinations, you could have gotten the answer to this question. Here's a question. You don't know how to do permutations and combinations, but if you realize that if you did, you'd be able to easily answer this question. Like, what's the chances of being dealt four of a kind in uh, in in poker? Well, there's the number of ways of being dealt four of a kind over the total number of ways of uh, being dealt five cards. That will give you the answer. Right, students? And they'll say, right. And, and, and I say, okay, well, next chapter, I'll teach you how to do that. But I want you to see ahead of time that that's, that that's what we're going to be doing. Because it makes people think in a, different, in, in a better way. They don't, they, they don't, otherwise, if I did it the other way, they would start thinking about how to do the combinations. I don't want them to think about how to do the combinations. That's just, that's just accounting. That's just uh, mm-hmm. bean counting. I want them to think about the logic behind what's being done. So that's how the book is. Uh, I take I take advantage of that. And that's what I'm. What the algebra book is going to be even better because the algebra book 
is going to be is going to be uh, uh, targeted to almost every body, mm-hmm. except for those who are lucky enough to be very proficient at math. But I'm going to I'm going to teach algebra the way my father taught me, mm. which is a lot different than than even those books that say like algebra for dummies. No, those books are still hard. This book won't be. Mm. That's my next project. But I wanted to try it out at first on probability. Mm. And it is a wonderful book, and I, I highly recommend people getting it. Uh, David, I have two more questions that I want to go over. Um, okay. So let's get into it. First of all, is when you were talking about mm, Daniel, you know, and his famous quote of, you know, the, the don't talk about the EV, never use that in front of me. Right. Now he's coming around. And I had a thought about Doyle Brunson, right? Yeah. How is he still so good? I am in awe, to be honest, when I think about like the longevity and also his approach, because obviously the super system which you contributed to, you wrote a chapter on um, one of the stud games, right? Uh-huh. A great book. High well, high well regular, I wrote about. My, right. my chapter was high well, but not eight or better, which is what they played back then. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what are your thoughts on, on Doyle? I don't have too much to say because I'm, I'm almost have... I mean, he plays in the very biggest games, and I'm almost never in those games. So I don't really uh, know um, enough to say whether he is... It could be anywhere from... There's no doubt that he is very good. But whether he is good enough to hold his own against those players or whether he has been slowly losing to them over the years but was so rich that, that he that he uh, doesn't plus don't forget he, he the, the, occasionally you do get the the tourists in the very biggest games you do sometimes get rich tourists like for instance uh Gee, the guy who who owned um Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. and there's others so if i was a um if in fact he isn't a winner he may be close to break even because he he loses a little bit when when there's no bad players and and then he wins a little bit when there are good players it's possible that he's a winner it seems almost impossible though because he you know hasn't kept kept up with the very newest ideas in the game and uh, so but he, there's no doubt. I played enough with him to know he's a very good player. No doubt about that. And uh, let's face it: even when in the days when um, people were not giving much credit to the to the <clears throat> new breed of mathematically minded players, look who he was willing to use as his experts. That he used four young guys who were to varying degrees that. But all college guys. It was Mike Caro, it was me, Chip, Bobby Baldwin, Joey Hawthorne, I'm not sure. But he, he it didn't bother him to use me for high low split. It didn't bother him to use Chip for seven card stud when we were both in our twenties. Mm. So he had already and he was a college graduate. So he's he's now now the one thing about him that that has always been annoying is that he thinks there's such a thing as rushes 
you know, not just because it's going to intimidate. Now, he may have changed his mind by now. I, I don't know. I mean, he certainly uh, is, uh, you know, understands odds and understands the best of it and all that. Whether he is, um, it, it, and it's certainly amazing that he's playing well. What he, I guess he's close to 90 now. But, you know, his son is, is a smart guy. His son, I mean, there's no doubt that he could make a living playing poker in middle-sized games. And and as far as the big games, I, I really can't comment because I never uh, play in, in those gigantic games. You know, maybe Chip, him and Chip were friends, and Chip might have taught him a bunch of things that were useful. They also made a lot of money betting baseball by doing something unique at the time, which was to get a computer to play the games, to simulate a game and then tell you how often team A won and how often team B won. They would input it, you know, all the stats and the computer in its, in its brain played, you know, a million games a minute and gave you the, uh, the right odds. And whenever those odds deviated from the bookies odds, they would bet. And they made a lot of money doing that, uh, several years ago. Mm. So, but I, I mean, I, I can't, he, he is at the very least, he is uh, on a, on a one to a hundred scale. He's a, at the very least, he's a 90, whether or not though, he is still beating the games he plays in. I don't know. And it would be surprising if he is. It's just a little bit hard to believe that he is, but he may be holding his own, especially because uh, uh, the very biggest games are probably often easier than the somewhat bigger games. The one thousand, two thousand games may be may be easier than the, than the three and six hundred games because of the fact that they occasionally attract the the rich tourist. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's true. All right, David, in the light of the current events, I think a very interesting chapter is um, is the chapter about Bob Stupak running for, uh, was it the mayor's position in, Neva in yeah. Uh, Vegas? Yeah. Yeah, that could, that could have an indirect, possibly an indirect impact on some things going on in the election. The, the, the chapter you're speaking of, he ran for mayor. Uh, he originally did it for, to, to bet a million dollars with Jackie Gone. Uh, he didn't really take it seriously, although I got him to take it a little more seriously. He, he, he was one of four candidates who, who entered the primary, the top two then entered the, the finals. He won the primary easily. And he was against a guy named Ron Lurie for, for the um, mayor's position. This was, I think, 1991. Mm -hmm. And um, he did all kinds of flamboyant stuff and frankly was very Trump-like in his the way he acted. And um, to the powers that be, it was appalling. Even though it's not too important who's mayor of Las Vegas, they don't have much power. But it's still they—they they were at the time they were, you know, horrified by the idea that uh, 
somebody like him would be the mayor. But he he won the primary easily, and he was spending a lot of money to try to win, partly because he had a million-dollar bet, which I describe in the book, talk about how <laughs> him and I went to the to to uh, deliver the million dollars to to Jackie Gone, and and we stopped at a restaurant, and Bob went to the men's room, and I'm sitting there at a booth by myself with a million dollars next to me. But anyway, that's off the subject. So, so uh, he um, did not win the final election, which seemed weird. And there was there were people who were very suspicious of that election for reasons that I never bothered to investigate. But they were talking about ballots here or this and this, all kinds of technical reasons why they did not believe it. Plus, of course, it was a little strange that he would have not, he had beaten Ron Lurie so badly in the primary and they, and Bob just didn't, it, 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 he should have, it seems like he, should, he, he was going to win easily and yet he didn't. He lost by a few percentage. Mm-hmm. And after the uh, election, there was a, a small newspaper that was owned by Bob that that did that that wrote some articles about why it was a very suspicious election, and um, you know they gave evidence. I never paid attention, but there were a lot of serious people who thought that that somehow the that it was a a fixed election, that there was stuff going on. Now, fast forward um, 20 years from there, about, about, I guess it was about, yeah, to 2009, I think it was. I had, I was no longer the resident wizard. Bob had sold his casino, built the stratosphere and sold it, and, and now was um, suffering from, from leukemia. And um, I didn't get to see him that often. But then one day I do bump into him and we went to uh, the steakhouse at the Bellagio Prime and we reminisced. And I also uh, told him about my book that you didn't yet read called D-U-C-Y. Mm-hmm. That uh, had a that has like fifty pages about him. There's like a fifty page section on on him there, and I wanted him to know about it before it came out. Where I where I uh, chronicle all of the different ideas that I did for him. Well, that's our, my my uh, parrot in the background. I'm kind of hmm. famous for that it's cockatoo. But anyway, so um, while we're talking. He throws something out, and it's sort of kind of important to realize that he didn't make a big deal of it. He just sort of said it in passing. He says, oh, by the way, you know that the mayor's race, I, I actually did win it. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, I had I had um, dinner with, with Ron Lurie recently, and um, he admitted it to me. I said, what? He, said, yeah, he admitted it to me. He said that that it was orchestrated, that that they that the shenanigans was orchestrated by the Mormon church. And um, at the time when he said it, 
I believed it, and 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 I not only did I believe it, but I I wasn't even that appalled because I remembered back then how scary it was to everybody who, other than the public that that a guy like Bob Stupak would be mayor. I mean, it turned out that Oscar Goodman became mayor, who was almost as flamboyant. And and uh, he was a mob lawyer, but at the time it just seemed like out of the question, and it wasn't an important election. So I said to myself, "Yeah, okay, that I I guess they decided that they were going to do something technically illegal uh, to uh, to fix the election." I mean, and then I, and of course there was always a chance that it wasn't true. It could have been untrue because Bob was lying to me. That seems inconceivable, but more likely. More possibly, Ron Lurie could have been lying to Bob, knowing he was sick, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, Ron Lurie was trying to make Bob feel better and say, you know, you actually did win the election. But that seems pretty unlikely. More likely, these were two friends who Ron Lurie, you know, was holding this in his, he, he was holding the guilt, and he thought he, he should tell Bob after all these years, after 20 years, that, you know, you really didn't win the election. You know, we couldn't have you actually win it would have been insane at the time we thought if you would win but we, you did and i want you to know it that's to me my it's just my opinion but to me that's more likely scenario and um i don't think ron thought he would ever that ron Lurie is still alive by the way i think he's 79 years old i don't think ron thought that bob would ever tell anybody but bob told me and i decided that I was going to divulge it. I guess you could. Some people would argue that I shouldn't have, but I'm going to. I, I decided to divulge it, not thinking it was that big a deal, although it was kind of a big deal. But now, all of a sudden, there is possibly, possibly, a argument that Nevada once already was willing to mess around with election results, and. Um, that would slightly increase the odds that they were willing to do it a second time for similar reasons, maybe, but that's, that's the story. So, so if now Ronald Lurie can be, I don't know if anybody has ever questioned him about my chapter, but, and how he would answer it. I don't know whether even, whether he would, whether it was true or not. I mean, if it's not true, he'll say it's not true, but if it's, if it's true, who knows what he would say. But if, in fact, the government of, or, or, or the powers that be in Las Vegas fixed an election 30 years ago, some people might think that that was a small piece of evidence that they're capable of thinking along those lines. And uh, so yeah. the strange thing is that chapter has a little bit more relevance. It's, it's it's not a big data point, but it could conceivably be something that somebody might want to point to. That that Nevada once did it, and so maybe they think it's just like those poker players who cheated once, and you said, but then they have to, they can't, uh, they can't, you know, quit. But why would they quit? They've already, they did it once, and uh, maybe they'll do it again. Mm. That's that was so that that chapter oddly became slightly more relevant now, although it looks like, but from what I see as we're speaking, it, it looks like it may not be relevant because it looks like 
Nevada's uh, electoral votes won't swing anything, I don't think, but they might. So if uh, he becomes if he becomes president because of that chapter, we'll, we'll make sure that he remembers us <laughs> as 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 this inter, as this information goes across the world. Mm. That's right, the right, problem with you're, small, uh, you're, small you're, events. <laughs> you know, you you might think, oh, it doesn't matter because it didn't swing anything. What is the viewpoint? What was the swing state? Just how do we decide whether that was when the votes came in? What if the votes were counted, you know, as as the first votes to come in? Does it change anything? No, wait, 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 no, 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 not in this, not in this case, not in this case. It doesn't matter what order. It didn't have to be the exactly. last state. Exactly. It's not because of the last state that we're talking about. We're talking about if with Nevada. Biden, that, that that the winner, that the, all the other states added up to such a close, you know, 267 to, and 267 or whatever it would be. Mm. In other words, where, where and, and, and Nevada is, went for, if, if, if Biden won by three and, and Nevada has six electoral votes and they do swing Nevada's or they make them, they make them a re-vote or whatever, if that were to happen, and then Trump won. Then that's then they're the then then their flip is the reason. Doesn't matter whether they were first or last. That's not relevant to this point. If 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 if, if Biden wins the election by less than six, then if you flip a state that has six, that was the state that made the difference, the fact that it got flipped. Mm. And if we're the reason that it got flipped, you know, we should expect, you know, at least 10 million each, don't you think? <laughs> that that would sound, sounds like a good number to me. Uh, On the other hand, we would have to, we would have to get plastic surgery and leave the country, leave our country. Oh, you would need to leave the country. I can, I'm, I'm okay here. I'm just looking at all the mess that's going on over the ocean from from here and in the comfort. Okay, I hope so. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We don't know who's listening, right? So I mean, the fact is that this isn't this is far it doesn't really change anything other than a slight point, you know, a slight point of view because there are some people who are saying, "Come on, the, the no nobody fixes elections. That doesn't really happen." Or at least Nevada has never fixed an election. Well, if it was up to me, I mean, I have, it's just pure opinion. If it was up to me, though, I'm 95% sure that Bob wasn't lying to me. And I'm 75% sure that, that Ron Lurie was not lying to Bob. So that makes it a little bit of a, of a, of a favor to be true. Mm. But the only way that anybody could, the only way it could ever be proven is if Ron Lurie himself well I shouldn't say that I mean if it, if it actually happened there were other people involved right mm, so right. I guess but and it really doesn't have that much to do with, with this election but the fact is you, you may or may not have heard that they're saying that 3,000 people in Nevada who voted don't live in Nevada 
I don't know whether that's going to turn out to be true. Mm. And, um, and the, the, the more, there's also the more general point that when one of the candidates is considered horrible and immoral and out of the question and appalling that people who would ordinarily not commit a crime will sometimes justify that crime. And in the case of when Bob was running for mayor, that might be what the Mormon church decided was the ethical thing to do. And if such a thing, if such a ideology is accepted in Nevada, in other words, the ends justify the means, then maybe it got repeated. It's all a big long shot, but I wouldn't mind this chapter from that book being part of the conversation. I don't think it's going to happen, but who knows? Mm. I mean, it depends how many people listen to your to your podcast. Well, right? I, I guess now there's going to be more. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll this this well, will maybe uh, they cut cut it down. Put, maybe nobody's put, ever going to maybe no one will be able us, to This will put us both on the map. So uh, yeah, you know, this will become it'll become required uh, right. required listening to by all of the. Uh, people right. in, 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 in around the world and government yeah <laughs> that, that would be that would be um quite quite a long shot and speaking of long shots there was one story which i which i read one of the chapters and i thought well, this is such an unlikely thing to happen this is crazy and the, specifically the one that i am referring to is when you were going to the movies uh, you had a date. oh yeah you were going to the movies. yeah. Do you mind telling the story because I don't want to give the details to give away the story. Okay, it's just yeah. beautiful. Yeah, thing. and this also I wrote in another book too. But it, it the I was uh, with a very pretty black girl and uh, uh, going to the movies. This is I guess about I don't know. I guess almost twenty years ago, but. The we're at the movies uh, at a casino. She's very pretty and in very good shape. And previously, I had had a couple of incidents with with her where she saw some item of clothing on on some other girl, and I and I actually went up to the to the girl and said. Will you sell me that hat? I once I once bought a hat off someone's head to give to her, and so she was used to me doing that. And the reason why that matters is because when the, so now we're at the at the movie theater, standing online to get a ticket, and for some I don't know why I did this, but we were talking about that I keep myself in pretty good shape, and I mentioned to her that she could punch me in the stomach and I would <clears throat> I could take it. I could handle it. And she said, okay, I'm going to do that right now. I said, you're right here. You're going to punch me. Yeah, let's see if you really can. So I said, okay, fine. So I flexed my stomach and she, she was in good shape and hit me pretty hard, but I, I took it. Okay. Now all of a sudden this young black kid comes up to us and says, can I do that? He says it to me. And you know, this 
kid is looks like an athlete. He's in good shape. And uh, not only that, he's obviously working at this girl, her name was Shay, and um, probably was interested in her. I mean, I'm 25 years older than her, and <clears throat> she's, his, she's her age. And uh, so it was annoying that he said, can I do that? And I, I, and I said, no, you can't do that. You know, and and then she points to his necklace, the bling, you know, what they call mm -hmm. a bling here. Right. That's, and this ridiculous necklace, I mean, it's really big and, you know, it has all these rhinestones on it. And so I decided to do my normal little thing. I, and I said to him, I said, to show you like that, she said, look at that, it's amazing. I said, so I said to the guy, I gave you 200 for the necklace. And he says, it cost me 750000 And I said, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay, it cost you 750000 Okay, fine. Okay, now, can you leave us alone, please, or something like that? And, and um, now she's tugging at my, my uh, sleeve, right, as I'm being kind of nasty to him. And, and what, what, Jay? She says, that's Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> uh, this is so crazy. Because first of all, how many people have been at the movies when Floyd, May Floyd May Mayweather is also there? Right? So that's already a small probability. Yeah. And then you get hit or in you're the taking stomach, a punch to give him a in the chance, stomach. To give him yeah. It's, it's, now, it's I mean, just... clearly, yeah, I mean, by the way, clearly he, he wasn't going to do it. He almost, I mean, he didn't say it, but it almost certainly what he was doing is he was expecting to be recognized mm. and thought it yeah, was funny course. that he could come up to me. Because imagine if you were if you were Floyd Mayweather, you would think, oh, that was funny. I'm going to go up to him and say, can I do it? And he's going to say, oh, no, no, no. But I didn't do that. I, I didn't know who it was, right? Right. So it didn't turn out that way. So, so when he says, can I do that? I thought he meant it. Or at least semi yeah. meant it. Yeah. He, he couldn't have meant it because he would have gotten in trouble. So I don't think he meant it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. So he had, I have to be in that situation. And he has to say that. And, uh, and then you also need to decide to buy his bling for 20 to And I have to decide to buy his bling. Well, I mean, and, 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 uh, you know, when he said seven hundred fifty thousand, <laughs> but this is a true story. I wrote about it in a couple of places, and um, yeah. oh, I, by the way, I have another. This story I didn't mention, but I'm, and but but this is kind of a cool story too. And I happened to be with this girl's friend, Shay's friend, who was also a black girl, and uh, we were at the Venetian. This this is a neat story. I should have probably put it in the book. Now. Do you know who Morris Chestnut is? Probably don't know the name, but no. Morris Chestnut is a is a is a very successful movie star. He's a movie star. He's black, mm -hmm. but he mainly is played in movies that that require black actors, like um, Waiting to Exhale. I don't know if you heard of that movie, but he's he's a, and he's very good looking. Okay, very good looking guy. I'm at the Venetian. This this is about two thousand. 10 also or something like I don't remember exactly when it was, but, but so now I'm at the Venetian with this, um, 
girl um, was there for a poker tournament and she came in to say hello and we're walking through the Venetian and we're by the front desk and all of a sudden she says, oh my God, what? Miranda, what? And she says, that's Mars Chestnut, checking in. I said, who's Mars Chestnut? Because I, I didn't, she said, you don't know him? He's a movie star. And then when I saw him, I actually didn't recognize him. And I said, well, why don't you get his autograph? She said, oh, no, 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 like, I, I can't, I'm too nervous. I said, come on, you're a pretty black girl and he's, he'll give you an autograph. No, 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 right? So now I'm kind of annoyed. I'm saying, I said, now nah, I know that he'll do it. So I say, hey, Morris, I yell to him. I'm about 25 feet away, but two of us are 25 feet away. I say, hey, Morris. And when I, I do have to preface this. She had been giving me a hard time, you know, saying to me that, um, you know, you, you're just David to me. I know you've written books. I know you're, but to me, you're just David. I hope you, I want you to always understand that to me, you're David, you're my friend, but I don't care about the books or anything like that. Right now I say, Hey Morris. And he turns around. I'm going to say to him, will you please autograph my, he turns around, he looks at me, he says, David Sklansky, I read all your books. He comes walking up to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, Miranda's sitting there with her mouth open. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't. I, I could not have asked for for a, a scenario better than that. She had just been giving me a hard time about how I'm a nobody, and so she's concerned. She's getting all, all excited about Morris Chestnut, and as soon as he sees me, he comes running up to me, all excited. <laughs> that, that, I should have put that in the book. I, I that's for my next edition. Uh, maybe the yeah. The second edition. So I've I've had a million little little anecdotes and it's many that I have not mentioned. Hmm. Some are a little bit more iffy, but uh, it just it just seems to you know one thing after another seems to have happened to me, and uh, you know it's the way my life has turned out hmm. because of the combination. I think it's because of the combination of my proclivities and my faults, my, my, my talents and my faults add up to a strange combination. Hmm. What do you think poker gave you? Like, what did you gain from poker? Well, it gave me something to get good at, to be good at, to the point where, where, uh, the fact that I was, not able to get good at the stuff that I'm supposed to, as far as my family was concerned, I was able to, I was able to make a name for myself. Like I told you, there's another David Sklansky and he has to call himself David A. Sklansky, even though he has written three books. He's the best law professor at Stanford. And he was a clerk, meaning he was one of the four people who were right behind the, Supreme Court Justice. Mm -hmm. He is a big shot. And yet, he has to use his middle initial so they, so they know that it's him rather than me. So, the and because poker, even though I think it's a little bit of a silly reason to become famous, the, the fact is that the, I'm not real, I'm not actually famous, but I mean, the number of people who probably could identify my name in this world is probably at least 5 million. 
between five and 10 million. Not too many people have, can be identified by five to 10 million people. Mm. I mean, there's plenty who can be identified by five billion, but, but five million isn't, isn't chopped liver. It's not too bad. Mm. Absolutely. So uh, it's, so, and, and I've had people come up to me and say, you know, because of you, I, I would never have achieved, I've achieved what I have, what I have achieved in various ways, except because of you. I've even had people tell me they were ready to commit suicide until they read my books and then they got some, they got some to sink their teeth into. So, hmm. uh, but I'm not done yet. I got the algebra book is going to put me on the map because everybody's going to, because every teacher is going to tell their student, look, if you're having, if you're having trouble, we can't teach you in a super easy way because it's too uh, demeaning for us. But if you want to get through, if you want to make things easy for yourself, go ahead and buy the Sklansky's algebra book. So then everybody in the world will know me and then, I'll, and then, then I'll be happy. <laughs> That's a beautiful cause. Your probability book definitely should be a must-read for a lot of people. In the gambling world, we think in terms of probabilities naturally, but for a general population, some of these concepts are completely foreign, and uh, they're so, so important. Right, and I hopefully I made it as easy as possible. Sometimes, I mean, it's, it's never going to be super easy, but... But I believe that, I mean, what you really need to know pretty much is how to multiply fractions and, uh, and use a little logic. And you can, you can do an awful lot of things with that if you um, slow down and think. And, and I describe the book. And, of course, in that probability book, there's also some essays about the real-world situations mm. and some famous probability problems and, you know, the birthday problem. Right, yeah. I, I'm sure you know the birthday problem. and. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, and you mentioned and, and, it in and, and, in in, uh, in the Vegas book as well. Oh, did I? Okay, I think so. so. Uh, yeah, but it was yeah, also in the probability did. book. Yeah, I just I just noticed. Yeah, well, that's a famous was... problem. Mm, it that's is. probably the most famous probability. <clears throat> that's the most famous probability problem, period, by far, because it's counterintuitive. Now, I, I designed this casino game based on that, and I didn't get. I wasn't able to sell it, but. Uh, and I have a lot of ideas about a few other things too, like like um, internet poker. I mean, I was I was considering trying to get a job as a consultant to one of these internet sites for various um, new games. It's just so hard for them to program new games. I got to But maybe we'll do a second interview, and we'll and, you know, and we'll be this time we'll be a little bit more organized, so you'll have a very we'll have some very precise subjects to talk about, and I can. Think about them first. Yeah, absolutely. We could do that. Especially, we even didn't touch on the topic of the games. And uh, there are several chapters, very interesting chapters in your book about that. How you came up with the about what 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 oh, basically oh, the became the Caribbean Caribbean uh, poker. Yeah. Right. So we didn't. Yeah. Even... That, well, that's interesting because of, of the not just the story of the invention, but the story of the patent and the exactly yeah. and all the different things that happened there. No. That that game is starting to lose a little bit of uh, of its luster because there's so many other poker games. When I was in Russia, by the way, this is another story I didn't tell you or didn't oh, write it about. Was in the book. Same... It was in the book when you when you saw that they were they had that game in the casino, and uh, oh, I did. That, okay. that I lady uh, Mariana was uh, 
Yeah. Oh, you you pointed out so, to her that oh, that's my game. I I invented it, and she was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> and I I didn't even try to argue with her. I mean, like, oh yeah, you invented the game. We're, I'm in, we're in Russia right now, and I would. Who are you? When she didn't even realize exactly what I was doing. Yeah, that's my game. Yeah, I'll, some American that I just happened to find, and now you invented this game that in this casino. Okay, sure. Mm. I understand you're trying to impress me, David, but you know you don't, you don't you try to do something that seems reasonable. <laughs> but there it was, and the same with the stratosphere. As I tell you, I've I've also I've also at times been with people. Where I say, you see that tower? I'm the reason that tower's built. Oh, you're the reason that the Stratosphere Tower in Las Vegas is built. Uh-huh. Okay. I think maybe we better call the doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm still here. I'm, I was yeah, just I, laughing I, here. I didn't I realize that. Been, I, w- I, I was laughing been. away from the microphone, so it's probably... I tend to do yeah, that. Yeah. I have been involved in... Uh, for one reason or another, I've been I've been involved in a bunch of uh, strange, interesting occurrences, mm. and so that's why I wrote the book. I also, though, as I did say in the book, and I admit it in the book, I said the main reason I wrote the book though was because of those few chapters where I have ideas for the world, but I know when no one's going to read them unless they they get entertained by the rest of the book. You never did. You didn't ask me about the Steve Wynn chapter, the Steve Wynn chapter, right? Oh yeah, the Steve <laughs> or the Carl. Uh, let, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, the Carl Icon chapter, or um, the uh, you know the well, Steve Wynn. I don't know. It, it's okay to talk. Say this on the uh, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Because the, the final. Yeah, the final <laughs> thing is, it, but yeah, why not? That's okay to say. I, oh, if course, I can't yeah. say the quote, then it doesn't even matter. Okay, so this is Steve Wynn was a um, owning the Golden Nugget before he did anything else, and he was pretty young. He's like twenty eight years old, but he, but he bought the Golden Nugget, and he was playing. He used to play poker a little bit, and I he read my book, and so he knew me a little bit, and we were slightly friendly. And um, I had noticed a very pretty girl in the in the Golden Nugget coffee shop who was a I, I'm just a bus girl, and I and I had talked to her a couple of times. She told me that she the reason why she wasn't a cocktail age, the reason why she wasn't doing more than that was because she wasn't even 21 yet. I said, "So are you going to be a cocktail waitress when you're 21? You're so pretty." And she said, "No, no, I think I want to work in the computer department somewhere. I want to. I'm I'm studying computers." And I said, "Maybe here." She said, "Maybe." I said, "Well, I happen to know the owner of the whole place, and uh, maybe I can." I, I might be able to help you do that. Oh, that's nice, right? And, uh, you know, so I was sort of hitting on her. And then I see Steve Wynn a few days later, and I say to him, could you do me a favor, Steve? Uh, walk into the coffee shop and talk to this girl and tell her that you heard about her. You know, so it would be a feather in my cap. And he said, okay, sure. So him and I walk into the coffee shop, which and he never went into the coffee shop. He only went to the nicest restaurants even then. So everybody's all scared about what is why is Steve Wynn in the coffee shop? And then him and I walk to the counter, which seems weird. And then we ask for the we start talking to the bus girl. And Steve did what he said he would do. And we walk out ten minutes later, and everybody is aghast. What just happened? And 
I guess they asked her what then why, but so okay, so the, I never I never did never did do me much good. <clears throat> I think I might have even never even seen her again, but that was the end of that story. Now as years go by, Steve becomes an incredibly powerful man in, in Las Vegas. He, he, he builds a mirage and uh, then it goes on to build a Bellagio and then, and then the wind. So he's, he's really a big shot. And uh, most people know that he eventually got into trouble though, because of the me too movement. Mm-hmm. In any case, he also is having problems with his eyes. He can't see very well. He has retinitis pigmentosa. And as years go by, I see him less and less often. He stops playing poker. And, you know, I'm not in his um, in his league anymore. But occasionally, a couple of times we talked for a moment. And now it's about 15 years later. And he's in the um, the pit, it was either the Mirage or the Bellagio, with a bunch of uh, big shots, suits, you know, vice presidents or whatever. And he's standing in the pit, which was unusual for him. And as I walked past him, I never even tried to say hello anymore because I would have to get right in front of him so he could see me. Mm-hmm. So I, but I noticed that he's in the pit. I'm wondering what he's doing. And now as I walk past, I hear someone say, Hey, David, I turn around and then Steve Wynn motioning me to come toward him with all these vice presidents around him. I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years. I'm, and I'm thinking, what is going on? Why is he calling me? That's, Oh, I know it's, he's, he's, he's uh, contemplating some new casino game and he, wants me to give my opinion of it must be what is what why he's calling me so i go over into the pit with all these guys around i said what's going on what yeah what's what's going on he said hey remember that girl at the golden nugget that i i went into the restaurant with you i said yeah you have a fucker and that's so weird so, so after all those years, mm. all that power, he's still a, he's still a fourteen year old boy, just like all other men are. Mm. They just don't usually admit it. He was willing to say it in front of eight other guys in suits too. They were all just listening to him. He mm. said it the same way my junior high school buddy would have said it to me. You know, mm. there was no difference. There was like I felt like saying, you know, you're Steve Wynn. You own five casinos and you're a billionaire, and you're in the middle of a meeting with all these vice presidents. And you stopped me to say that? <laughs> but I didn't say that. I just said, no, I didn't. And that was the end of it. <laughs> but that was, that's in the book. Yeah. He probably isn't too hot. And, and then, of course, this is right when he's getting into that other problem. I mean, and it makes more sense now that they, he got into the problem with the, with the masseuses that uh, he supposedly did stuff with. But, yeah. And I had some more, sort of a similar thing with Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn paid for me to fly to New York to um, have dinner with him because he wanted to ask me about some sports betting thing. Carl Icahn, as you probably know, is 10 times as rich as Steve Wynn. He's one of the richest men in the world. And um, during the dinner, 
just out of nowhere, he says, I got so much fucking money. And I began, I'm thinking to myself, what? That's, some, that's what a person who has 2.3 million might say, you know? Not someone who has 35 billion. I got so much fucking money like he's a kid again. I mean, but they're all, it's all, it's all like they say. It's like these, these guys, no matter how rich and famous and influential they get, influential they get, they, they're still basically 14-year-old boys still. So I put yeah. that anecdote in there. Yeah. I don't even know what to think of it. Because in a way, it's beautiful that people still stay the 14-year-old boys and at the same time it's pathetic <laughs> so it's kind of I don't well i i don't know about it it's, uh, the problem is that 14 year old b boys attitude toward um the world is probably not the best so it's oh, probably well, absolutely well, yeah. but i'm still a 14 year old boy also so i can't really c criticize anybody mm. because there's a certain also curiosity and naivety that goes with it you know that it's good to see that people still have that in them as opposed to becoming well there you know. did you ever see the movie citizen kane citizen kane i have to admit that i haven't i obviously know okay, about citizen the kane was, a lot about it but he he, he was uh, he was uh ran he was supposedly the same it was based on randolph hearst the hearst newspapers they again a super duper rich guy right and then uh when he died in the movie his last words were snowbird or something like that right um or Ro rose no rosebird or I, I forget what it was let's say it was rosebird and um that was his last words and then the whole movie was trying to figure out who was he talking about what was he talking about and this reporter was doing everything to find out what this me mega 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 person was saying his last words and they don't actually ever find out but but they flashed at the very end to when he was four years old, his sled named Rosebird died. I mean, didn't die. It, it, it got burnt in the fire. Mm -hmm. So the last thing he thought of was something that, he, that bothered him when he was four. <laughs> so this, and of course, there the, is that you didn't mention the very last chapter of the book, my little, uh, my little story about being in a hospital bed. The story about being in a hospital bed. Did you read the very last chapter, or did you not quite get that far? Yeah, yeah, I read the whole book. I'm just okay. Thinking. Well, the last chapter was about where you were, where, where you were paralyzed in the hospital room. Why? Very last chapter. Yeah. An unexpected ending was the name of the of the uh, okay. of the chapter. Yeah, the unexpected ending, the theoretical, uh, hypothetical, right? Yeah, it was. You know, it was like a Twilight Zone little story, but yeah. there's, but you could, I mean, the fact is that there is a possibility that it's sort of like saying that we're in a simulation and that we're, mm. it's not really us here and all that. And yeah, yeah, it's a bit like the Matrix kind of idea. I guess sort of like that, yeah. Yeah. But I tried to make it logical. I tried to say that it's reasonable. Mm. So, uh, I mean, one good thing about not having a job is you get a chance to think about a lot of things. And I like thinking. See, a lot of people don't like to think. They want to avoid it. I actually enjoy it. I don't like it when I'm not thinking about something. So, of course, I'm going to think of more things than the average person because I, thinking is something I like to do. Mm. 
And unlike the typical person who likes to think, they, they usually have a specialty that they're thinking about, whether it be math or physics or something. I didn't get far enough in, the, in, the, in those subjects where I'm thinking about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. I know what that is. I do, actually, I do think about that a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> that is, you know, for me, reading the book, the things that stood out the most, which I found really beautiful, is is the way you looked at some everyday problems and things that many people would just walk by, don't think twice about it. And yet you saw either the flaws or the mistakes or the inaccuracies or, you know, just thought from a different perspective. And it's so, so interesting to hear these stories, to, to see how other, you know, some people's brains work because, you know, you are in the minority in this world, I, I, I would say in terms of, you know, how your mind works. And, um, I will say one thing, though, uh, uh, in uh, uh, against myself, or at least uh, as uh, not so much of a criticism, but wh one thing that I do, like when I put a post up on our website, people will, a lot of times will say, "You think you can apply your mathematical thinking to everything?" You know, every time you put a post up, you show some kind of logical or mathematical thing. And uh, you really can't do that. Well, the reason why they're wrong is because they don't realize that I don't, I don't listen to a subject and then think of what what I have, what my opinion is of it. I don't, in other words, I don't um, choose subjects to analyze. The way I wrote about it once is subjects choose me. I don't just say. Tell me a subject and I'll tell you what I can add to it. Mm -hmm. I only write about subjects that I believe I can add something to it. Most subjects I do not think I can add to it. I don't think a lot of people think that I am so arrogant that if you want to, if you start talking about quilting, I will give you my two cents about quilting. But I won't. The reason I, I give my two cents about subjects where I find a flaw or find something that I think I can add. That is the minor. That's only a small percentage of the subjects that I know about or have read about. I so the, so of course it looks like I think I know everything about everything, but actually I only write about those things that have obvious things to be said about them that has that no one else has said. But I do not think that I have something to, to say about most subjects. Mm. I only think I have something to say about subjects where there's something that has been not yet said. And um, so I give a deceptive, I, 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 I give a deceptive, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, but people's opinion of me is a little bit is a little bit wrong because they think that I think I can say something about everything. I think I only can say things about a few things, and but those are the only ones I ever 
offer an opinion about. Mm. If you ask me an opinion about something at random, I'm more likely than most people to say, I don't know. I'm more likely, not less likely than most people. Most people are willing to give their opinion about a lot of things because they're not as hard on themselves about whether they thought about it enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know enough about most things. One thing I do know, though, about most things is that is in many cases you add one extra piece of information and you have to change your your opinion. I know that from poker. In other words, if you tell me a, a poker hand and you ask me what you should do on the river, I'll say something. But then, then if you if you say, oh, oh wait, I forgot to tell you that on the on the turn, uh, I checked first. I'll say, well, in that case, I got a whole new answer. Do we have to do something, Sue? But, uh, yeah, you didn't ask me about my scandal, but we'll do that next time. Yeah, we can do that next time. David, listen, thank you so much. Uh, It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate you making the time today. And I'll put the links to all the recent books and, you know, all the material that people want to find it's all going to be in the description um, so it's going to be easy for everybody to find and I really hope that people will go ahead and, and buy at least one of these three books which you recently recently wrote great I appreciate it well David thank okay, you so thank much you. and maybe just uh, say uh, something to the audience like the, the, the last word like buy or something I don't know <laughs> okay so well, that... I, I appreciate this interview. I uh, want to mention, by the way, that I probably would never have gotten to this point without Mason Malmuth, who I didn't uh, mention until now, but he had a lot to do with uh, my success, and I thank him. And, and there the are... of my parrot, who you're now here in the background. Yeah. Yeah, and there okay. are so many things we should still reconvene at some point and talk about, and I, okay. I hope we'll make it happen. Anyway, David, thank you know. so much, and you have a good day today. Okay, you too. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. You can find the links to some of David's books there. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways from each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.